Yes, I'm going to start with this freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Please, if you're consuming, pay for the bandwidth, pay for the server costs, everything that you know we need to pay for to bring you this amazing show. So freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Great set of callers tonight. The first was a guy who realized somebody was trying to break into his house and he was absolutely, completely and totally terrified. Of what? Well, you might be surprised. Then again, you might not be. When he talks about it, I think it will all make sense to you when we talked a lot about where that fear came from and whether it's rational. Number two, eh, maybe this has happened to you once or twice. Maybe this question has popped up in your mind. How do I cope with all these left-wing, half-retarded, resource-sucking idiots that surround me? And um, I really wanted to make a good case as to the hidden benefits of kindness, uh, the liberating effects of being generous with your knowledge. We talked a lot about that. Number three, a real-life superhero called in from some sort of cave. I'm not sure entirely full of bats. And uh, this is a guy who puts on a cape with his friends, goes out and tries to do good at night. And uh, we quickly dug into what might be motivating him. It may surprise you. It surprised me. But uh, it was a great conversation nonetheless. And again, always appreciative. As always, appreciate everyone who calls in. freedomainradiocom slash donate to help us out. With no further ado, hit me. All right. Well, up first today, we have Clay, and Clay wrote in with quite the story, and I thought it would be better if he read his email as opposed to me. So go ahead, Clay, and welcome to the show. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Michael. Um, my letter goes like this. Last night, I was the victim of an attempted burglary home invasion. Your analysis of my thought process during and after the event would be much appreciated. I'm trying to determine why my focus and thinking during this high-stress encounter was not in regard for my safety or my property, but rather my potential incarceration of loss of rights. Sitting down for a quiet Thursday night alone, I heard a bit of a rustling downstairs on the wall, and then the movement of the blinds of the window inside the house. Setting my book down, standing up, my mind immediately raced to determine what the sound could be. An animal inside the house trying to get out of the cold inn, an animal trapped inside the house trying to get out, uh, but... How would it be get inside? With the sounds continuing and my realization that there was really only one logical reason why such a rustling would occur, I yelled out very loud and in a deep masculine tone, Hey, hello, who's down there? During this brief silence and ever since, my mind's thoughts have been permanently stuck to one subject. This subject and my realization that it is not the one that it should have been is why I'm writing you now. What I have not been able to get over is simply this. Why was my fear not for my safety? I did not think about my personal property nor the results of possibly having to physically fight for my life within the next few moments. My fear was, and it continues to be in retrospect, lawyers and media. Because no matter what happened next, if an al- I understood that if an altercation arose, the rest of my life could very possibly be ruined no matter what. I consider myself very fortunate that of what did actually happen next. I narrowly avoided one of so many horrible fates. As I started to walk towards the top of the stairs, I racked around into the chamber of my sidearm handgun. This sound is very distinguishable and echoed in the quiet house. Within the next few seconds, three things happened. My phone began to ring. I took two or three steps. The door downstairs slammed shut very loudly. Deciding to answer my phone, Knowing that, um, uh, and lift, uh, knowing that 
that it would be quicker than dialing the police to inform someone, anyone, of what was happening. I lifted the phone to my left ear in a guard position, keeping the firearm pointed toward forward down the stairs. Um, the phone in my left uh, – oh, sorry, I was reading. I was about to go down the stairs. I answered and said, Dad, someone is breaking into my house right now. Um, the sound of the window and blinds from the room with the door now closed were faint, but I could hear the rustling of the perp exiting the house, probably as quickly as he could. My father immediately said, call the police. Pausing halfway down the stairs, realizing that whomever it was seemed to be retreating, and with my father's instructions, I started backing back up the stairs. At the top of the stairs, I called the police. The sounds had stopped. The police arrived 12 minutes later. Um, while I was told not to continue back down the stairs for my safety. I'd like to take a moment um, to say that when they did arrive, the, the, uh, they treated me very well. The PD and the forensics team were, were awesome. Also, um, I had informed the dispatch that I was not in fear of harm and that I was armed, and that probably would you know, explain some of the delay. So, Stefan, um, I'd like to reiterate my question. As you could tell from the story, I, I was not physically afraid of the perp. I was extremely afraid, though, of what remains in my mind is certainly the wrong topic that I should have been afraid of. My thoughts raced around being um, arrested, being stripped of my rights, being called a racist. God forbid the perp had darker skin than I. Uh, trial by media, being incarcerated indefinitely, or some politician using my flight as an evil tool. Um, why is my reaction to this potential life-threatening home invasion completely political? Have I become programmed? While I should have been you know, thinking about exits, number of assailants, the route the perp was taking, I was thinking about corrupt politicians and the propaganda machine. Why do disgustingly political possibilities trump the potential of loss of life of me, the victim? Right. Right. No, that's a... Uh... A perfectly understandable question, and uh, I think you know the answer as to why you were having these thoughts, right? Um, I, I think I understand why. The part that really upsets me is that they were the forefront, and they are what continues to be after this you know, altercation. I mean, just reading that letter, I'm already getting my adrenaline pumping. <laughs> and the adrenaline was not pumping out of m the mere fear of a physical conflict, right? A, a self-defense conflict or, or something like that. Your fear was that, let's say, a black guy was breaking into your house and you shot him. Right. What would happen then, right? I exactly. I mean, all of the fear was if an alter if you know, if I saw him at the bottom of my stairs, if he rushed me, if, you know, the, the, these type of things I was relatively relaxed about, but I couldn't get my mind past the what ifs, the, the beyond that, the, 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 the trifles that my family you know, and friends would have to go through, the, the, you know, my picture on the front cover of a newspaper calling me a racist and, and these type of things. And that's, that's what continues to be the stress of the whole situation, well, sure. it shouldn't have been. Well, when you think about this situation, let's say that you had caught sight of the guy's forearm and it was a white guy. How would you feel? Like, how, how would that have affected your emotional state in the moment? I assume you're white. Yes, sir. Yes. 
Okay. Um, I think it would have relaxed me a bit because many of the horrible possibilities they, they would have been lessened anyways um, because of obvious racial issues in such situ, you know extreme situations in the media and etc. Okay, so you said it would have been lessened a little bit. So is your concern the race element or the fact that you were concerned that self-defense would have been uh, something you might have been charged for uh, or something you might have had criminal charges against you regardless of the race of the perpetrator? I'm just trying to figure out if it's self-defense as a whole with a minor umbrella of the racial element or if it's racial element as a whole with a minor umbrella of the self-defense aspect or something in between. I think uh, the closest answer to your question would be B. It would be the racial element first. I think a great deal of my fears revolved around that first and foremost. And then secondly, just, you know, the 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 whole media situation that would surround it lessened greatly if the perp, you know, was also Caucasian as myself. Well, I mean, unless I'm misunderstanding something, it wouldn't be lessened greatly. It would be non-existent, wouldn't it? And if a white guy shoots a white guy, how could there be a race element involved? I I I, I see how you're you're right, but I mean, I I assume I still could, you know, be incarcerated. I could still, you know, go through a lot of the tri the, the tribulations and the issues. Certainly, they would be. 90 plus percent less if the perp was, you know, a lot less likely to be the perp that, that would do such a, such a thing. But yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So my, my, my assumptions, I mean, hate to say it and all, but you know, I mean, it's pretty obvious that, you know, it's more likely that this perp had, darker skin than I than not and I know that's not necessarily the right thing to say but it's um, but it would make the situation a whole lot worse because of the increased likelihood of that okay yeah but it's just because you would you see, the racial element is is I think where the hysteria comes in these days and um, look I mean, as, as far as self-defense goes, you know, remember, of course, this is just all my amateur opinion. I'm certainly no expert on these areas. But in certain places in the United States, it's a stand-your-ground law, which means you don't have to run away. You don't have to back down. And certainly if you're in your house, it's going to be pretty hard to – like if someone's coming into your house and you shoot them, I think it's going to be pretty hard to portray you as the aggressor because you're not supposed to run out through the back door. You're allowed to stand your ground uh, as far as I understand it and um, – uh, f uh, fight back, so to speak. So uh, the self-defense element, if someone's breaking into your house, I think is easier to maintain. So it would seem to me that the major issue that you would have would be the possibility of, you know, Black Lives Matter descending upon you and uh, finding you to be some sort of horrible racist. Let's say not only is it a black guy um, or a Hispanic guy or an Asian guy, but, you know, let's go with these statistics that are most likely, as you pointed out. Let's just say it's a black guy. It turns out the guy's 16 years old and he's unarmed, right? Right, which is in that situation most likely and had gone through my mind. Most likely he's a black guy. Most likely um, he's younger in age than, than myself. Most likely um, he was unarmed because he did pause at the sound of, of my, my sidearm being cocked and did not retreat. Um right away there was a hesitation and then a run and he certainly didn't pause it a very loud man yelling at him um so 
maybe the fact that I was armed was the trigger that uh, took him a second but then caused his retreat. And then so this was an aggressive person. This was likely to be, yeah, a, a, a Black Lives Ladder Matter type thing if, if an altercation were to occur. And then the rest of my life is, is ended no matter how right I may be in doing so. Yeah, because you'll be that guy. Right, like like Darren Wilson and um, George Zimmerman and and whoever, right? You're that guy now, and the cloud will always um, be hanging over your head, right? As they say, all they find you is not guilty. They don't find you yeah. innocent, right? And, and with Zimmerman, right, I mean, right. they it, saw the wounds on his head, and the cops basically just let him go the same night saying, yeah, you're not going to be charged. And then it was because uh, all of the... Um, uh, the media went hysterical and they did the pictures of him when he was 12. And, you know, they just they just race baited it up insanely. And this guy was dragged through a complete nightmare, lost his fortune. Uh, well, not that he had a fortune, but lost all of his money. Uh, it's basically unemployable. And I mean, just a complete nightmare facing, um, you know, life in prison for a charge, I guess, of, of murder. And um, I'm sure that there are times where he wished he'd just lay back and let Trayvon Martin finish the job. Uh, his life was over, over either way, just in different degrees. I mean, I, I can't imagine what George Zimmerman's going through today. A, a change of name, plastic surgery. I mean, very, very bad things. Yeah, it's um, – I don't know either. I don't know either. And um, yeah, Darren, Darren Wilson as well and the, the guys uh, who took down Walter Scott – uh, and, um, you know, the guys, uh, the, the, the men and women, black and white currently facing charges for the Freddie Gray, uh, incident from, you know, uh, manslaughter to God knows what depraved heart murder and all this kind of nonsense. <laughs> right. And so, so, I mean, these, the question is why, uh, is this all happening in the first place? Because, I mean, there are still people out there who, I mean, the black lives matter movement as a whole started off the Michael Brown shooting, right? Where Michael Brown, uh, and we've got a whole presentation about this, so I'll, I won't go into any detail, but Michael Brown attacked a cop, tried to take away his gun, the gun discharged, he charged the cop and he got himself shot. And there are still people out there who believe that he was shot execution style in the back of the head, you know, according to the testimony of that crap weasel who perjured himself and of course was never charged. Um, and, uh, there's still people out there who believe that Michael Brown was the gentle giant, the innocent who was shot execution style by a racist white cop, because we live in a media world of, um, race lynching of, of white people in general, where these conflicts arise. And we know this because when, um, you know, I just put this out in a presentation recently, when a bunch of black and Hispanic youth say they're going to go kill a white person and then bludgeon to death. A, a young man in front of his pregnant fiance, um, and uh, you know people don't. It doesn't show up anywhere. I mean, when when two black cops uh, shoot down a father and his uh, autistic son uh, in a car, um, nobody protests about anything. So, so the the question is, what is the purpose of all? this stuff. I mean, because there is hysteria, there are these psychoses that societies go through from time to time, you know, like the satanic rituals in um, daycares. And you, you get these psychoses that society goes through from time to time. But this is not an accidental one, in my opinion. I mean, this is something that is, is very, very clear it's in its intent. But I don't want to lecture you in a, 
in a conversation. Do you have, I mean, you've obviously given this matter some thought and it's sunk down into your brain. Quite and a it's bit. It's poking up your, your K consequence processing module. Uh, so why do you think this stuff is, why do you think the media is just so relentlessly uh, focused on, on slandering and uh, destroying the lives of uh, white people who are defending themselves against black people? Um, it must do them some good. The, well, the, that's the sort of a tautology. Yeah. Why do they do it? Because yeah, it does yeah, them uh, some good. Yeah, okay, I, but, but what? The, the, what good? The media's uh, t- attacking us because it sells. It's the narrative that people want to hear. Um, they, they put they. I mean, I, I can I can think about it. I mean, to the degree where maybe their whole intention was to program me in the first place, so that in such a situation, I am thinking about the wrong things. Is that what? I mean, yeah, well, it's they can't get rid of your guns, so they must attack your capacity for self-defense, right? Right. Okay. The left has been unable to take away uh, the guns in America. Of course, they've wanted to for for many years because everybody who lusts after totalitarianism must first disarm the population. And the left's goal, socialism, as Lenin said, is the is the uh, the end goal of socialism is communism and communism is dictatorship and so like all dictatorships they they need to get rid of your weapons in order to take over now they can't disarm you by taking your guns away physically because they're cowards and don't want to you know like why why do they why do the protesters against the use of animal skins and fur why do they throw red paint on elderly manhattan socialites in their fur coat rather than going in and throwing red paint on uh, bikers in a biker bar wearing leather. Well, because <laughs> the elderly ladies in the fur coats are not going to beat them up with pool cues, right? And so, um, so they can't. They haven't been able to take away your guns, and so they want to take away your capacity for self-defense through fear of consequences. If that makes sense. Yes. So, so you're so you're ultimately saying that the purpose, and to, to answer your question earlier, is. Their intention was to ultimately inject me with this fear um, so that I react in sub-prime ways that I should. Um, and ultimately, I, I, I guess they, they, they do this to protect themselves. I mean, you mentioned the R versus K. and Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's to protect themselves it may be a little bit more sinister than that but did you want to keep thrashing away at it or um, how would you like to go yeah my my mind's racing <laughs> um uh now good you know yeah you, that, you that's what the show is for yeah exactly you bring up several several additional points and um yeah uh, with with this I mean, I, I in my letter I had, I'd use the word programmed. Why am I programmed? I feel programmed. I fear that feel that this is my thought process because it's supposed to be, but it's not supposed to be. I should been thinking about you know my way out. I should have been thinking about you know retreat and and or or the on the on the flip side of the question, maybe I should have just well, obviously not in this situation because it ended. I mean, in my opinion, well. Um, but, I mean, it charged the assailant. No, the, not necessarily it ended I mean, well. If it had ended well, then the, um, then the thief would have been caught, right? That would have been the best outcome. Cer- yeah, certainly. 
I mean, he's out there now. And of course, if you'd been in England, where guns are largely absent from homes, the guy wouldn't have been scared of you um, having a gun because he'd know you didn't. So this is why home invasions are so much more common in England. But um, the fact that you had a gun, and this is sort of the point of the Second Amendment, right? You had a gun and you prevented a crime. Is that ever going to show up in the statistics? Of course not, because liberals are too busy compiling statistics of gun deaths. I tripped over a gun. I shot myself. It's a gun death, right? And so uh, here's something which is really not going to show up in the statistics is a a crime that was prevented by you uh, having a gun, but being afraid to use it, right? Yeah. Uh, Ultimately, I mean, it, I mean, that's, it's a tool that that saved me. I mean, the 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 perp. Several moments went by after me, a man yelled and screamed at them. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, and he he might have killed you. He might have raped you. He might have tortured you. It might not have just been a home invasion, right? It's the Willie Horton stuff, right? I mean, uh, there can be uglier stuff that happens than you know you lose your MP3 player. <laughs> right. Exactly. I can have my TV. Yeah. Um. Do you want me to go on a little bit more with the stuff that's making your mind race, or do you want to... Absolutely. That's mostly my... All right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot in this. There's the philosophical error, which is... You know, the right has its own philosophical errors, which is focusing on the left. There's a philosophical error that's right down at the heart of this, but that philosophical error, like all persistent philosophical errors, serves a particular gene set. So the philosophical error that is foundational to all of this stuff, and this is why, you know, people are asking me, well, why are you you harping on IQ so much? It's because if we don't, like if we don't understand IQ and and promulgate and propagate the the methodology of understanding the world through the lens of IQ differences among races, society is going to collapse. Like, I mean, I'm I'm not kidding. It's that important and that serious because this is the basic and, and most fundamental This is the basic and most fundamental belief of the left. And I don't know if they believe it deep down, but this is is the premise that they're working for. And the premise goes something like this. We are all the same. Therefore, all inequality results from exploitation. We are all the same. Therefore, all inequality results from exploitation. Right? The workers are the same as the managers. The workers are the same as the capitalist. Therefore, the capitalist is only getting extra income by exploiting the workers. Right? This is foundational to the left, and this uh, occurs across gender. Men and women are the same. So if men have more money and more assets, it must be because they're stealing them from women. It's not that men work harder, although they do. It's not that men stay in the workforce longer, although they do. It's not that men get more economically valuable educations, although they do. None of that. Men and women are the same. And therefore, any inequality must and can only be the result of exploitation. And it also occurs with inheritance, Right. I mean, what Donald Trump received from his father was not some money and some business. I mean, he got seriously high IQ, which is to a large degree genetic. You know, people say, well, you know, if I got a million dollars, I'd be just like Donald Trump. Nope. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Otherwise, every lottery winner would be running for the Republican <laughs> 
candidacy and the stage would be a little bit more crowded. Um, you know, half of all lottery winners go bankrupt within a couple of years. And it's not like the rest of them all become highfalutin $10 billion worth media and um, real estate moguls. So we are all the same and therefore all inequalities are the result of exploitation. Exploitation being a nice word for theft, right? So if women don't make as much money as men and everyone's the same, then the only conceivable reason is because women are being underpaid and men are exploiting them. If the workers are making less than the factory owner, then it just has to be accidents of birth, inheritance, exploitation. The, the factory worker must just be able to hold his nose and sociopathically drain the economic lifeblood of his minions. And so like, we're all the same. So all inequality, all inequality is the result of evil, of, of, of exploitation, of theft, of wrongdoing. This is all bad enough in that context. But when you start mixing race into it, things get even more explosive. And, and you'll see this, like when you get this, basic idea, you'll see it just photocopied endlessly with very tiny permutations and variations everywhere you go, all across the internet, all across the world in the people that you look at. So if you look at um, what do a lot of blacks say? Well, a lot of blacks say, of course, well, we make a lot less money than whites. And so given that we are exactly the same as whites, the only reason we can be making less money than whites on average is because the whites have exploited us. And this happens not just within a country among the races, but it also happens between countries. So the third world looks around and sees a crap hole of graffiti sprayed, bullet sprayed, kleptocracy run, nightmarish hellhole. And they, they look at the West and they say, well, the West has a lot of nice stuff, but we're all equal. Everyone in the world is equal. So the West must have nicer stuff because they've taken it from us. They've taken it from us. This fundamental fantasy that everyone's the same and therefore any accumulation of difference must be stolen is what drives the left and what drives this hysterical race baiting and what drives the entire narrative. We're all the same. So if you have more than me, you've stolen it from me. And I'm going to use whatever means necessary to get it back. Now, this fundamental fantasy that everyone's the same, even individually, there's a bell curve. Of course, men and women are not the same. Like if men get a lot more Nobel Prizes in science than women, it must be because of sexism and exploitation in the sciences. The fact that at the highest levels of intelligence, men outnumber women by a factor of 10 or 20 to 1. And the fact that most genius work in science occurs from like 20 to 40, which is the time of maximum fertility for women. A lot of them drop out to have kids, which again, <laughs> I like the fact that there are kids around. <laughs> what's that great line from an old movie, Forces of Nature with Ben Affleck and, uh, you know, what's her blobby? Um, anyway, this, this guy, this is a, do you have any kids? No, but I see him all over. <laughs> it's kind of a funny line. Um, Sandra Bullock. That's it. It's a good film, by the way. Anyway, um, so this, I, so so the fact that that there are more men who take STEM, the fact that there may be some biological hardwiring that allows men to do better in science, the fact that uh, men's intelligence at highest levels and lowest levels, to be fair, is much greater than women. Women nestle around the middle of the bell curve. Men are more stretched out at either side. 
the fact that the dedication required to become a uh, top-level scientist uh, or top-level anything means years of dedication, usually uh, at the time of greatest fertility and fecundity for women. Like, uh, it, uh, this, this doesn't matter. Doesn't, it doesn't matter because everyone is exactly the same. And so when you have disparities in society, the only explanation can be evil. And this is why I keep talking about IQ, and it's not just IQ. You know, we talked about the warrior gene in uh, the Truth About Crime presentation and so on. It's not just IQ. It's a whole emotional makeup, deferral of gratification, capacity to bond, empathy, sympathy. Like, all of these things are not evenly distributed among the races. And so when lefties look at, and a lot of righties too, right? But, but when most people look at the world and they see, for instance, that black countries do really badly, look at Haiti, 400 plus years of independence and black rule, and it's still a complete crap hole, right? They look at that and they say, how can this be? Well, it must be because of exploitation, because everyone's the same. Everyone's the same. Even a attacker now, and a victim. There's an attacker and a victim, right? The only reason that Haiti, for instance, or, you know, the various countries scattered around Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, where you've got an average IQ cooking in the 70s or two standard deviations below the Caucasian average, the only reason that Africans are poor is because they were colonized by white people and white people stole all of the fantastic wealth <laughs> that was in Africa before the Europeans came along, even though the Africans didn't have a wheel, didn't have a two-story building, didn't have a written language, didn't have anything really. Popular false narrative that's also uh, the indigenous peoples of America can be applied. Oh, yeah. There's a great line from Coulter where she says the American Indians, uh, basically their entire civilization consisted of chasing the ass end of a buffalo every time they got hungry. Right. And um, if, yeah, if you look at, I mean, the, the sculptures that, that, that were around in ancient Greece are, are staggering to the imagination. There are reports that there was a sculptor who uh, sculpted grapes so, and sculpted and painted grapes with such fidelity that birds would land and try and eat them. I mean, it's just amazing stuff at the same time that you get these god-awful totem poles that look like giant Satan penises of grotesque gargoyle masks carved by an idiot nine-year-old. Um, sorry, just not a big fan of some of this native art. It's you know, relative <laughs> it's, to it's, Michelangelo's David. It seems a little bit on the underdeveloped side, to put it mildly. And well, so everyone's equal. And, and once you understand it from the left, everyone is equal. Therefore, all differences arise from exploitation. And therefore, it is fully just to steal from those who have more by force, by deception, by lies. Right. Why is it on the left that they have no honor, no honor? And this is all the way from Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. They recognize honor only as something that other people have that you can exploit them with. That's all. They own, like, that's all it is. They only recognize honor as something that other people have that they can exploit. And so why is it the left have no honor, will say and do anything to redistribute the income to steal from those who have more and give to those who have less. Well, because they're stealing back, right? I mean, if you steal my bike and I see it there and it's unattended, I'm taking it back. Because 
whoever's got more must have taken it from everyone who had less because we're all the same. We're all just a bunch of bunnies. We're all just undifferentiated blobs of protoplasm. So the only way you can get more is being bad. Therefore, anything is justified to return the property to its rightful owners, which is full equality for everyone. You know, communism, the ultimate our selected strategy where everyone is the same and everyone should make the same. And so this idea on the left that, that it taxes and, and like it's all stealing back. Right. And this narrative is fundamentally the driving motivation of the criminal class. The criminal class is an age-old parasite on the productive, right? As I've said before, there are the makers and there are the takers. Now, the takers have a tough time justifying just being thieves and assholes, so they have to create an entire superstructure of ideology to justify the aggression and the violence that they feel. And so groups that are doing badly as the result of either culture or genetics, doesn't really matter which at this point in the game, they are desperate for a narrative that gives them the right to steal. Of course they are. Of course they are. Gives them the right? ability because, to exploit me. Right. Uh, and, and this is how we know that they know they can't compete, right? All groups that are down at the bottom, that instead of working their way up through hard work, through dedication, through savings, you know, like the Japanese did in America, like the Chinese did in America, like the Jews did in America. The Jews arrived penniless from Western Europe, and within four years, we're making the same as the domestic white population because they save, they work hard, they invested it themselves. So when people run to the government, they're confessing that they cannot possibly compete. They are, uh, they're saying that they know we're not equal. We, we know we're not equal. We know that we can't get it through our own merits. So we're going to run to the government. But that's shameful, right? That's, that's embarrassing to have to run to the government. You know, it's like the, the kid who says, I want to have a fist fight and then runs for the teacher. He's just confessing that he doesn't really want a fist fight. He just, he was hoping he was going to win. He couldn't, so he's going to run to the teacher. And so how do you justify if you say, well, I'm equal, but I'm not going to compete, right? You know, there were, there were some groups that ran to the government, uh, like the Irish ran to the government uh, or ran to the church, right? They became policemen, they came priests and so on, and they did pretty badly. Other cultures like the Japanese sealed themselves up in their own cultural spheres. Uh, they worked hard, they got savings, uh, they, you know, worked from dawn till dusk in these god-awful convenience stores, uh, these little capitalist orb prisons of, <laughs> you know, bad food habits for other people. And they just, they, they did fantastically. Uh, and now, of course, the, um, the Asian income is in general higher than the... Um, um, than the whites, the white natives, right? Which is why Asians are like Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> the, the, well, it's not even that, Casper the Invisible Ghost. You, you can't see Asians in racial conflicts because they put lie to the idea that whites are racist and so on because they do better than whites. The same thing with Jews. You know, if, if IQs are so great, if, if whites are so great at investing, inventing tests that, that measure and benefit white IQ and they're culturally biased, then why do Jews and Asians do better than whites? Because there's something a little bit more objective in IQ tests than people like to think. So how, if you're running to the government, you have to run and say, things are unfair, we've been exploited, and therefore we should get our money back. We want to steal money from, we want to use the government to steal money from people who have more. But that's a confession that you're not able to compete. That's a confession that you accept that you are unable to compete and therefore you have to run to the government. 
And so the more you run to the government, the more hysterically you have to cry out this mantra that everyone's equal. Anyone who has more has stolen from me and therefore I'm justified in stealing it back. And so the more, and it becomes a vicious circle, right? Once you have this justification, you feel more justified in running to the government, which then confirms that you know you can't compete and broadcast that to everyone that you can't compete, which means that you're going to fall further behind because you're now addicted to the government rather than the free market, which means that you then need more justification. This is why this is all snowballing at the moment is that minority communities that run to the government are confessing that they can't compete, which means they're going to fall further behind, which means they need to have a more hysterical justification. They need to cry out more that they're exploited. They need to cry out more that they're torn down and beaten down by Whitey and the invisible Asian overlords. And this is just going to have to play its way out until people say, oh, okay, I get it. All races and all ethnicities are perfectly equal in that they have adapted to different environments, which has given them different characteristics, and they each succeed in different ways in different arenas. And blacks and Hispanics in particular, as well as, of course, um, uh, aboriginals and and a few other groups, uh, don't succeed that well in a free market environment because they adapted to something different, right? I mean, the, the, the Chinese do really well in a free market environment. Why? Because the Chinese have been running free markets off and on for a couple of thousand years, and they only kind of showed up in the African consciousness like 100 or 150 years ago. Not a lot of time to adapt either culturally or genetically to all of this. And so this hysteria is, you know, people aren't willing to listen to the clear evidence. Uh, people aren't willing to explore the science. And so this hysteria is really dangerous. It's really dangerous for society because if whites are doing better than blacks and Hispanics, but everyone's equal, then whites who are doing the best in general in the world, whites must be, must be the most evil race around, right? Because they have a disproportionate amount of the world's resources and wealth, which means they must have stolen it from brown people. So whites must be the most evil race around if you accept that everyone's equal and therefore everyone has more is, is evil, while those who have the most must be the most evil. Now, interestingly, where the Chinese and Japanese fit into this is that uh, they're not particularly prone to the guilt thing, right? They're not particularly prone to the guilt thing. And, you know, from conversations I've had with people over in East Asia, they look at Europe and it's like, why would you, why, why, why? The Jackie Chan thing, why? Why are you doing this suicidal thing and inviting all these people into India? Why are you crazy? Because the pathological altruism of white people, which we've talked about before, and we had Barbara Oakley on to talk about it as well, means that they're susceptible to this misguided sympathy. And this is what Ayn Rand talked about, the dangers of altruism, right? This misguided sympathy or the idea that, well, I guess, you know, white people did wrong to blacks through slavery. Absolutely. Yeah, it was some bad stuff. Uh, I don't see what relevance it has to world history as a whole because white slavery was a tiny blip in world history, uh, in the world history, let alone the world history of slavery, and uh, the white Western European Christians were the group that ended slavery around the world. So they should be getting the cheers for everyone who hates slavery, should be cheering the white people for ending it, but that's not how it's playing out, right? What's playing out is that white people are endlessly condemned. And so you have a criminal class that needs to justify its continuing predations upon those more successful than itself, said predations being a confession of impotency and an inability to compete. And that criminal class 
has really got its teeth deep into the neck of civilization. And by criminal class, I'm not talking about any particular ethnicity, right? There are base whites, noble blacks, you could, you know, as a whole mix. I'm just talking about the particular ideology. And there's no secret that the leftists pander to Hispanics and, and blacks and women. There's no question about that. That's just a political fact uh, pretty much all around the world, particularly uh, in America, although some, to some degree true in Canada as well. But what they're doing is they're enabling a criminal class. Now, a criminal class, what do they want? Well, they want the government to do the stealing for them, of course, right? Because the criminal class is usually the cowardly class. And they want to disarm their opponents. Because the criminal class can't flourish if the opponents, uh, their prey, is well-armed and confident uh, in its ability to defend itself. As the old saying goes, it ain't so much fun when the rabbit's got a gun, right, hunting. And so they need to disarm their prey so that the criminal class can flourish. I mean, clearly, right? And so this whole process where the media uh, destroys the lives of anyone who tries to protect themselves, well, that only works on case-selected people because our selected people don't really give a crap about consequences. Whereas case-selected people have all this sensitivity and worry about the future and, and, and look down the tunnel of time to see what the outcome of certain things are. I mean, did you think the guy trying to break into your house, whatever ethnicity he may have been, do you think that the guy trying to break into your house was thinking about the long-term consequences? Like I had a friend when I was younger um, who, uh, you know, took, took – um, unemployment uh, insurance for a month or two and he's like oh man i gotta stop this is like you know i'm not looking for work i i'm just you know i'm not looking enough for work i i, I gotta i gotta just cut myself off because this is just like making me stupid i'm sitting on the couch uh playing nintendo and I, i've got to get so he, he voluntarily kicked himself off and went out and got a job and had a successful career and life and all that but it's just looking down through the tunnel of time but that takes a certain amount of intelligence a certain k predisposition and so on to look down through the consequences and so it's not like the people who are the criminals are really caring about consequences or looking down through the tunnel of time. You know, they're probably cooking at IQ 80 to 85 and uh, significantly abused childhoods and warrior genes all over the place. And this is not specific to any particular race, but is not exactly evenly distributed across all ethnicities. So they're not thinking down the roads and thinking down, down the tunnel of time. And um, so, so they want to disarm their enemies and they know that case-selected people care about consequences. And so it only takes a few examples, right? It only takes a few examples for case-selected people to change their behavior, right? Which is what you're looking at, right? You're looking at, uh, at George Zimmerman, maybe even Michael Slager, the guys who took down Walter Scott. Uh, you're looking at uh, a bunch of people. Um, uh, and um, I'm sorry? And then that's fear when I look at Yeah, them. so you're looking at those people and saying, well, those smoking craters... I better negotiate and navigate those. And that's exactly how case-selected people have to survive in a harsh climate where you, you're going to get eaten alive by old man winter. You, know, you only have to see one family starve to death by eating their seed crop, and that gets seared like a brand into the brain of the case-selected people. So you only need a few examples. And, of course, if, if, like, you know, if the criminal classes didn't need like i have put this nicely oh you know forget the political rhymes so i mean blacks have a lot of criminality and you'd think that young black men would look at you know the one out of three or one out of four black men who are grinding their way through some form of the criminal system and say wow that's that's bad you know those examples are really bad and they'd not do it right whereas for case selected people 
you kind of only need a couple of examples to scare the living crap out of and change the behavior of everyone. So the fact that, you know, a quarter of, of young black American men are in trouble with the law, you'd think that would be enough examples to scare everyone else in that milieu away from breaking the law. But it's not. Whereas, you know, we see a half a dozen examples of white people's lives destroyed by political correctness. And we're like, OK, I guess I'll choose the possibility of death over self-defense, you know, the old saying used to be, it's better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. And now it's like, eh, coin toss, because, you know, you might survive, but it's your life really worth living uh, afterwards. So all of this is around eroding the self-defense of the Ks who are the natural prey of the Rs when the Rs are empowered by the state, right? The state is is a function of redistributing resources from the makers to the takers. And so... Uh, but they need their justification and they need to inflict guilt on the case. And, and guilt in, in case starts with feeling bad about something wrong that's been done by you or your ancestors and, and wishing for honorable restitution. And it starts with that. But that's not where it is now. That's not where it is in Europe. And that's not where it is in North America, certainly among whites. And I have a pretty good view of this because, you know, we've done a lot of shows on this. I've seen a lot of comments. We've got a lot of feedback on it. But um, what's happened now is that whites have switched from guilt to fear, right? You don't feel guilty about slavery. You're afraid of being destroyed if you have to defend yourself against a black home invader. Is that a fair way to put it? Exactly. Now, do you know among white people and maybe among other groups as well, do you know what – so we start with guilt – The guilt gets exploited, the guilt and the hysteria builds, the guilt gets exploited, people get more disarmed, greater prey, greater predators, and then the guilt turns to fear. And do you know what comes after the fear? Lashing out? (laughs) The rage. Yeah. 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 I feel really bad. Here's some affirmative action. I feel really bad. Here's some welfare. I feel really bad. Here's government schools. I feel really bad. Here's, here's, take, 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 right? And then this swells the dependent classes and swells and and reaffirms and has, I argue, uh, destroyed and undermined Hispanic and black communities in in absolutely disastrous ways. You know, this this guilt has been uh, incredibly bad. And guilt is one of the few things that can make K people abandon, abandon their principles. And so what's happened is the guilt has and the guilt has gotten worse and worse. And then when white people click and get that the guilt is being used to exploit and destroy, there's no anger in the world like the anger of someone whose generosity has been exploited and they finally get it. When you think you're being nice and people just take more and more and more and get more entitled and more aggressive and more hysterical and more abusive and take more and more and more, when that switch goes off, oh, man, it's brutal. It's brutal. And you you can see this in Germany. It has gone from feeling bad about, I don't know, what happened with their great-grandfathers who were forced to fight under Hitler 70 years ago. It's gone to rampant terror. And the rampant terror in in case-selected people can only last for a certain amount of time before the fuse blows and the rage comes out. And that rage is unstoppable, which is why I'm trying to have as many conversations about this in hopes of staving that off. The rage of the bounce back from exploited guilt and kindness, uh, that rage knows no quarter. It knows no mercy whatsoever because um, it is fairly common 
among, I think, European cultures to say, well, you know, treat people the best you can. And then after that, the first time you meet them after that, treat them the way that they treat you. And uh, people have been shoveling resources at this uh, group, hoping to, you know, I guess a lot of white people believe this too. Well, you know, these people are the same as us. And in fact, they have less. It's because I have more. So I'm going to give them some. And has that solved the problem? No, it has made the problem worse. The income disparity gaps in America are widening as they are throughout a lot of places in the world. It's made things worse. You've got a massive dependent class uh, among the blacks, massive criminal class among the blacks and Hispanics. Uh, you have uh, ridiculous levels of uh, fatherless children uh, in the black community, like 77% of black kids grew up in a fatherless household. So it has made things absolutely worse, and it's made people more entitled and aggressive against whites, which is the whole Obama thing, right? I think Obama was the last straw, like, okay, okay, we'll vote for the guy, because, you know, he looks half and half to me, but everyone tells me he's black, so okay, I'm going to vote for him, that's going to solve the problem, right, right? Right? Worse. It doesn't. Are you kidding me? We gave this guy the presidents, this untested two-term senator with no goddamn academic history, no going to find out what his marks were or anything, marks being the operative word. Nobody. So we just, okay, we'll give it to him. We'll give it to him for racial healing. And how's that been playing out? White people, how's that racial healing coming along? Uh, race relations are worse now than before Obama got into office. And uh, this idea now that white people, to, so, to some degree, gave away the presidency to people, to, to a political um, ideology that not many were sympathetic to uh and in return uh they're just considered to be even worse and more racist and more bigoted and more prejudicial than they were like then at the beginning of obama's presidency well and the the last thing i wanted to mention as well is that um women are, are for obvious evolutionary reasons not particularly great at seeing predatory threats down the road Right? Because that's not their job. They're not soldiers. They're not hunters uh, throughout most of human history. So women are not so great at figuring out – this is aggregation, lots of exceptions. But um, you know, their stories are – people are reporting it. I obviously can't confirm it independently that um, a woman who got raped in Europe has posted apologizing to her rapists for the rape culture called white Western European civilization that produced – their rapiness and she's apologizing to her rapists. I mean, that's not very good at, at yeah, society cannot protect anyone who's that unwilling to protect themselves. I mean, nothing, you just can't work. It can't work at all. And um, women in Europe are overwhelmingly voting for migrant friendly political parties and are overwhelmingly rejecting uh, any parties that want to close the borders. And women are the reason why Barack Obama got into power. And women are just not great. You know, maybe this will change in the future. I don't know. But they're not that great at looking down the road and seeing uh, dangers that are coming up. And of course, right, because they don't, they don't get drafted to go fight in war. So it's just not something that they've adapted to. And this is all just my opinion, right? And so one of the reasons why the migrants are coming into Europe is if you look at a lot of the people in charge are women. A lot of the, I mean, a lot of the people in charge, right? Angela Merkel uh, is uh, a woman, the woman who uh, was saying to all these women, keep the migrants at arm's length is all, um, it's a woman. And, and a lot of these people are, are women. You know, um, when you look at um, the war in Libya seems to have been directly driven by Hillary Clinton, who brags in her emails about being able to convince Obama to go to war there. And of course, in Libya, Libya, Muammar Gaddafi was saying, listen, if I go down, the gates of Africa are going to 
crash down and all the migrants are going to flee into Europe. I'm like, I'm like the last wall between Africa and Europe. And, you know, Hillary Clinton's like, yeah, you know, let's just get them overthrown and, you know, let's get civil war going and so on. It's just bad. It's bad stuff uh, all around. And, of course, it was the woman, uh, it was the woman elected Barack Obama who withdrew all the troops from Iraq, creating the power vacuum that ISIS is now flooded into. And um, so um, this is a, a, another challenge that is hard to, uh, to overcome, um, which is that I think men are better at figuring out potential martial dangers um, than women are, which is why, in general, there's lots of exceptions, but this is a very, you know, it could be a 51-49, but that's enough in a democracy, right? But this is why when you look at the comments, a lot of the guys are like, oh, yeah, what's coming? Oh, it's, you know, something's coming, something bad is coming, something bad is coming. And the women are like, oh, they'll be fine, you know, they'll integrate, they'll adapt, and so on. And, you know, sorry, ladies, fantastic strengths that women have. But uh, figuring out the potential martial results of disastrous demographic policies is not, uh, <laughs> is not one of them, in my opinion. So that's sort of a very big picture overview of some of the factors I think that are leading to, to where you are. Does that make any sense to you or am I completely talking out of my earlobe? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's basically le- legitimized my, my fears themselves. I mean, I, I don't know if I just needed to hear it from someone else saying that, yeah, my assumptions of the race of the perp were not, you know, wrong. They're not wrong of me. And, if you and, were a betting man. Yeah, right? if I was a betting man. It's, but not that they were wrong, but they were also not wrong of me to assume them and not wrong of me to assume the next step if an altercation were to. So I, I feel better because I don't feel like I was thinking the wrong thing at the time. I was legitimate. No, it's not paranoia. It's not yeah. paranoia. Uh, sorry, just one other thing I wanted to mention too, which is that um, – the, the general idea that the, the criminal class, of course, wants to paralyze the cops. They want the cops to be avoidant of the situations which would hamper the criminal classes. Freedom of movement, freedom of theft, freedom of, of violence and so on, right? And, of course, in the, uh, in the black community, there are lots of fine, upstanding blacks who are being preyed upon by other blacks, right? I mean, the crime within ethnicities tends, of course, to be greater than crime between ethnicities for reasons of proximity and so on. And so the honorable, decent black community is horrified, you know, by, by the cops standing down to some degree. And I think that this is called the Ferguson effect, right, where the cops are afraid to go in and, and get tangled up with um, black criminals or potential criminals because they're afraid of it escalating. And, of course, it's emboldened the blacks who can taunt the cops, right? And there was a detective, I think it was, who uh, allowed himself to be beaten into a virtual pulp by a black guy. Uh, rather than fight back because he's like okay i'll take the beating now rather than have my life be destroyed by fighting back and maybe i have to kill this guy to get him to stop beating me up right and so this is the level of unbelievable um breakdown that is occurring in policing in america where because the media is so r selected and so r driven and thank god they're all dying like the mainstream media is just dying a painful death and whatever you can do to accelerate that i would urge you to put a brick on the gas and yodel your way uh forward uh because um yeah i was just reading about canadian newspapers are just it's so bad that they're (laughs) thinking of running to the government for help oh god but um, yeah, as alternative media like myself, uh, yeah, you cancel your paper. Do not go 
to the newspaper's websites, find other people who are reprinting them, uh, put on ad blockers, all the legal things that you can do to deprive them of ad revenue. You've got to starve the beast and just don't have anything to do with the mainstream media. Um, don't watch TV. You can get just about everything rebroadcast on YouTube. Uh, cancel your paper. Cancel your subscriptions. Don't give them a goddamn penny. I have no paywall uh, overarching accounts. I do a lot of research, of course. I don't, I'm, not giving, I'm not giving these guys one thin goddamn dime because they are just a bunch of our selected predators who are the halo attempting to blind us from the horns of the criminal class advancing with a lawnmower to chew down our kids. So um, you, you, you just got to do whatever you can to starve the media of their income. That is the, the, the most uh, fantastic and wonderful and, and uh, I dare say patriotic thing that you can do uh, in this world. And so the criminal class wants the cops to stand down. They want homeowners to submit to being robbed rather than fight back. They want detectives to submit to being beaten up rather than fight back. And the, the only reason this is happening is because of the media. And so the media are, at the moment, the mainstream media is the enemy of all that is good and civilized and, and has potential for hope in this uh, or any other universe that we know of. And uh, uh, this, um, you're afraid of the media. I mean, because the media, uh, like I'm doing a lot of research into the Gian Gomeshi a trial that's going on here, I guess it's just finished recently in uh, Toronto. And um, the degree of trial by media, um, this unbelievable lynch mob, the media has abandoned all pretense of innocence until innocent until proven guilty, um, for uh, certainly for whites and certainly for men uh, as a whole. And in, in all cases where there's white on minority I I altercations or where there's any kind of sexual impropriety alleged or proposed between a man and a woman, I mean, it's like um, innocent until proven guilty, unless you have a penis and someone thinks you might have waved it around in incorrectly, uh, then you're just, you're guilty, your life is destroyed. And the best that you can do is uh, stay out of the physical prison and live in the prison of ostracism instead. And uh, yeah, the mainstream media, you, you've got to starve that beast. I mean, if, if you're giving them a dime, you're funding your own destruction. Funding my own programming. Yeah. Wow. Well, my are you in a bad neighborhood? I didn't think so. <laughs> um, no, not that bad of yeah, a neighborhood. It's a working class, middle class neighborhood. Right. Yeah, I mean, just uh, you know, prevention is by far the better part of cure, as far as that goes. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, you know, there are places you can go. You know, just looking on the web and sort by crime. You know, you can go to a whole bunch of places uh, wherever you are where crime is virtually non-existent. I'm not going to even talk about the racial composition of those places. But, you know, obviously, it's a lot of Scots people. Um, but, um, yeah, you, I mean, if you're this concerned about it and I'm, you have every reason to be. I have a real fear, uh, yeah. Yeah, then, then, you know, take proactive steps. Don't live your life in fear. Take proactive steps to keep yourself secure. Um, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and you don't want to be in a situation like this ever again. And there are places you can move to where you have no fear of that happening. You know, I mean, where you're living, it's, you know, thundering, uh, there's lightning flashing down, you're standing under a tree crossing your fingers, you know, why not just go to a place where it's clear blue skies? That's a good point. That's a really good point. Something See, I didn't that... say clear blue eyes. <laughs> It's like oh, clear blue skies. Skies, right. yes, exactly. Something that actually I seriously considered after this uh, 
speaking with a family member. That was their first question when I told them what happened. So when are you moving? Um, yeah. I mean, this middle class neighborhood may be slipping. I mean, if I stick around, will it have bars on all the windows in another few years? Maybe I shouldn't. Well, you know, and I hate to say it, but I mean, these are, you just have to look at the demographics by and large. Right. You know, I remember when I was a kid, so growing up, uh, it was mostly mostly a pretty white neighborhood. You know, when we would go, we would go swimming, and we would take it was five pennies, five pence to go swimming when I was a kid, and it was a public swimming pool, and this was their level of charging people. There was a box. A tin box, gray, rusty edges, a tin box, and not even a turnstile. And you you just, you put your money in and you went swimming and nobody checked. Nobody checked. That's all that was necessary. That's all that was necessary. I mean, what, what amount of social trust is that? How efficient is that? You don't have to have someone sitting, some hapless person sitting there at minimum wage saying, Put the money in the box. Put the money because people will just do it. And a supervisor and a building. And-, and I don't remember a lot of people masturbating in the hot tub or, you know, assaulting the kids. Anyway, so this social trust, like a, a lot of us can't fathom that. And multiculturalism has shown repeatedly that it completely, it, it, it virtually destroys social trust. People cocoon, you know, one of the reasons Americans are getting fat is they don't want to go outside anymore. And why do they don't want to go outside? Because the neighborhood, there's no compatibility. And so when I was growing up, there was this social trust. Uh, you could get on the bus, you were just an honor system to pay. You could go swimming and it was an honor system to pay. And this is one of the reasons why the economy grew, because you didn't need all of these petty little gatekeepers to remind people to do the vaguely fucking decent thing and pay for what you consume. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Please help out the show. Absolutely. But um, just um, it's hard for people to remember what it's like when there's social trust in an environment. You know, when... when um, All your kids can intermingle and they all pretty much share the same values. And it's not complicated to talk to your neighbors. And you don't need gatekeepers for people to get on the bus. People get on the bus and they'll pay to be on the bus. And you didn't need ushers. You know, you could just go to see a movie and to put your ticket in the little box. And, you know, like you just you didn't need all of these stupid little gatekeepers. And so the economy could grow because people were off doing something productive rather than being the tiny little social nags that you need when social trust disintegrates. But there are places where you can go where you can leave your doors unlocked at night. There are places where you can go where you don't need to lock your car. There are places where you can go where you can leave valuables, so to speak, like bikes and all that. Just you leave them out front in your in your yard. There are places where you can go, where you can go for a walk at midnight, whistling, checking your phone without thinking that you're like a guy in a World War I trench smoking a cigarette. You're going to attract a sniper or someone's going to just grab your phone. There are places where you can go and feel perfectly secure 
in the world. And your neighbors are never a source of stress. Uh, there's never people. You're never afraid of footsteps behind you at night. Uh, you're never afraid of the rustling against your Venetian blinds. It's just going to be a squirrel or a tree. Uh, people will help you out. And, um, you know, you'll shovel each other's walk. If the people are away taking each other's mail, everything's great. There are places where you can go. They're getting rarer, tragically. But there are places where you can go where social trust is so high that it literally feels like you've kind of died and gone to heaven uh, as far as having to reorient your somewhat paranoid uh, city-dwelling existence, right? You don't need the radar. You don't need the antennae. You don't need the, hey, hey, did you hear something? Did you hear something? <laughs> Was somebody stepping on a twig? Hey, what's going on? <laughs> right? I mean, you don't need that. You don't need that. And um, those are places to look into. I, you know, quality of life is really, really, really important. And what would it be like for you, Clay? What would it be like for you if you had no fear of criminality? Uh, stress, blood pressure, time saved. Yeah, it would change. And then through all that, so many other aspects, I'm, I'm sure, would be much more comfortable in my life. I, I, I yeah. can't even imagine how many different ways it would improve if I didn't have to think about, is the garage door closed? Are you sure is the garage door? Maybe I should circle the block and make sure the garage door is. Well, while I circle the block, should I you know, see if that one creepy neighbor's look, you know, <laughs> that, that type of thing. Yeah, have you ever done that where you drive away and you can't remember if you closed the garage door and you're like, it bothers you for the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. Or did, uh, right. you know. Or did I leave a window open? Has somebody got to climb through? Or you know, well, obviously, um, absolutely, happens. Right. Probably affects me all day at work. Yeah. 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 Look, there's a reason why people don't live in Detroit anymore. It was a white city, and now it's not. And it's sad. Uh, you know, I, I wish the planet were different. I wish evolution were different. I wish everybody was equal. You know, well, not necessarily everyone was equal, but I wish uh, the bell curve was evenly distributive of, of abilities across all ethnicities. But, you know, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. We have to deal with reality. I wish you could have a pet tiger, but um, apparently you can't, right. <laughs> according to Siegfried and Roy. And so what does it mean for you to not have to... Uh, not have to scan to not have to feel uneasy what if you didn't even need to lock your car what if you could just leave, what if you could leave your car windows rolled down and your wallet <laughs> on the armrest right all day and not give it a second thought and utterly surround myself with that type of environment not just the persons i choose to associate with when i go out when i talk to people at work but completely surround myself with those those people that type of people yeah i mean there is the basic question why do men die i don't know what's it seven or eight years before women do and part of it i think is because men are attuned to danger and men live in areas where there is less comfort in a lot of places and again i don't think women it bothers them as much for a variety of reasons although it certainly can 
in particular neighborhoods, right, where they're afraid to walk out at night and so on. But I just, I wonder the degree to which, you know, healthcare costs will diminish. You know, it's important to build a minimum stress life, you know, particularly if you're interested in, say, improving and changing the world at the expense of the criminal class and the abusive class and the mean gang, as my daughter would call them. And so I think it's important to try and get as comfortable and happy and peaceful and secure an environment as humanly possible. And um, yeah, so, you know, just have a look, just, just have a look. And, um, you know, according to some of the research that I've done in an unrelated matter, you know, the, the top 10, and we've got some of this data in the truth about crime, but the top 10 um, most dangerous cities, you know, have a high ethnic population, you know, again, who cares fundamentally what the cause is? You know, is, is, is the lion chasing you because it's hungry or playful? I, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't really, I'm not, not going to affect my decision to run like hell. And so you may just want to, you know, and it's not about being around white people. You'd be around Asian people, <laughs> commit crimes even less than white people do, you know, and seem very friendly and positive uh, people. Of course, as a software guy, I had a lot of uh, Asians apply and worked with a lot of Asians and fantastic, fantastic people. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's something to think about. I mean, because if something does happen, I mean, you, you really will kick yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, if it happened again, I couldn't imagine how horrible I'd feel or if it happened to someone else when they're home. I mean, so, I mean, that, that, that quality of life, that level of social trust that could be gained relatively inexpensively cost of you know time moving and or such is is a lot less than uh <laughs> any trial by media and or other harms that could could arise and yeah and and trust I mean, me man uh, yeah, I'm not if, if you move to a peaceful place yeah. if you buy a house in a peaceful place i can pretty much guarantee you the value of that is going to increase over the next little while <laughs> yeah okay exactly as, as i said i mean who knows if this is a signal for bars being on windows and yeah, values of homes massively dropping in, in the near future. So, um, and listen, I mean, just, just to give you the context of the media, and we'll end here if that's all right. But yeah. in order to be delivered to physical abuses, you must first be verbally abused, right? I mean, if, if you are in an abusive relationship as an adult, it seems virtually certain to me at least that you were at least verbally abused as a child, right? The verbal abuse breaks, breaks you down and destroys you to the point where physical abusers can move in and take over. And this is part of sort of the breakdown, the dressing down and the breaking down of people that occurs in the military and so on. But in order to be delivered to, to be a victim of, of physical violence, you must first be verbally abused. And we're in the later stages, I believe, of the verbal abuse of the media delivering whites and Asians up to the physical abuse of others. Uh, and um, that is a, it's a heinous and hellacious thing uh, that is occurring. And, uh, you know, the people in, in Europe that I've talked to uh, both privately and on this show, they're scared of the migrants, but they're terrified of the media. They're scared of the migrants, but they're also terrified of everyone around them judging them as, you know, Nazi, racist, white supremacist, KKK monster who wants to kill 6 million XYZs, right? And, um, that that aspect of things is is really really important. The the mainstream media is a series of shrieking harpy verbal abuses aimed at 
disarming, disemboweling the self-confidence of Caucasians so that we will pay people to leave us alone. I mean, it's, it's a verbal shakedown. And, you know, there's that old thing from Pulp Fiction, like a guy, a man robbed a bank with a phone because he was talking about having kidnapped the bank manager's kids. Well, you can rob an entire civilization with typing. Well, thanks very much, Clay. I appreciate that. Let us know how it goes, if you don't mind. Uh, just let us know if and when you decide to move camp and, and uh, uh, let, let us know how it goes if you do. Will do. I'll stay in touch. Thank you very much, Stefan. Thank you. Thanks, Clay. I'm glad it uh, worked out for you. All right. So up next is Evan. Evan wrote in and said, how do I cope with all these left-wing, half-retarded, resource-sucking idiots? I feel like Neo being violently thrown into the real world of truth and reason, and everyone around me is still in the Matrix. I'm so very excited about these new ideas and beliefs, and I want to share these with people, but I am often met with extreme opposition. Everywhere I seem to look, there are more lies and more socialist propaganda. Maybe I am letting it get to me too much. Any wise words of wisdom for this newly initiated Free Domain Radio listener? That's from Evan. Hey, Evan, how you doing? Good, Steph. How are you doing? Well, thank you very well. Swimmingly. <laughs> All right, do you want a rant or do you want a conversation? I will let you choose. Well, more of a conversation, I guess. I just, you know, I, I guess to expand on that just a little bit, I started listening to your show probably about six months ago now, and... It kind of reaffirms some beliefs I've always kind of held, and then it's it's kind of changed my mind on a lot of different things as well. And, you know, as anybody that just finds out this new information, I want to share it. I want to share it with my friends, turn other people I know onto you. And Hey, everybody. I've got some cool new truths for you. Let's play. <laughs> ah! If only that was – yeah. So it's – I'm, you know, I'm Go trying on. to figure out a way. Say to... reason and evidence one more time, motherfucker. I dare you. Anyway, go on. That's no, fine. I'm, I'm trying to, um, I guess, just figure out the best way to kind of deal with it because it's, it does kind of feel like I made the matrix analogy. It does kind of feel like I'm seeing the world in a lot of ways for the first time, and I'm, you know, it's, it can be rough out there. Yes. And what's been happening in particular? Well. <clears throat> A lot of actually, I mean, a lot of positive things as well. I've turned about five of my friends on to you, and they've uh, they really like to show a lot. But I'll talk to some people that um, you know I just come across in everyday life, or you know, friends of mine, um, and some personal relationships. And we'll, you know, we talk about politics a lot, especially with the election coming up. And I'll, you know, start speaking some some truth that they might not have, you know, ever heard before, and, and, or they uh, agree what, with. Uh, Sorry. Evan, what kind of truth are you uh, are you talking about, my friend? What are you bringing up? Well, I guess a, I'll go with a recent example. Um, one of my uh, partners in my business was railing on Donald Trump, and I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily planning on voting or whatever. But I, I understand, and even before I started listening, to how you were talking about the, the whole Trump situation, I kind of understood what he was doing, and I understand, you know. The, that he's saying certain things that might not be popular in the mainstream media, but there is a there's a lot of people out there that want to hear this. Obviously, if you look at his poll numbers, and they're saying, "Oh, he's such an idiot. He's a moron. He doesn't know what he's doing." And 
I'm like, the dude's built a $10 billion empire. What have you done? Um, <laughs> Thank you from Mr. Dunning-Kruger in the front row of I don't know quality because I'm low rent. But anyway, go on. Right. So you know, that's just a recent example of how I've gotten a recent de- a, a debate about you know Trump. And well, a couple of my friends have been, you know, they were in the military and they were railing on about the Iraq war. And I, part of my email, I did, you know, I used to be a Republican. I was a supporter of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan before I really started actually thinking and uh, re- researching <laughs> myself. And, you know, so we've when, got, you, when you listen to the mainstream media, I don't want to be nuked and vaporized. Let's go invade these guys who were responsible for 9-11 and ordered Niger yellow cakes and uranium tubes. And, right, right. So we'll, you know, we'll get it. He was never that. an ally or nothing. <laughs> no, we didn't put Saddam Hussein in power at all. No, it didn't. It never happened. Um, so, it, you know, instances like that where we'll just um, – because it probably has a little bit to do with my profession. I'm a I'm in sales, so I'm always changing people's minds and talking to people. So I'm not one to back down from a debate. Um, yeah, but also, I mean, sales. Uh, since your first your first sale is always yourself, the product comes afterwards. So right. it's important for you to be liked. And so running into the whirly blades of the fact that Trump seems to break people's minds on a regular basis. Uh, is a challenge for some of your personality structure, I would assume. I've done a lot of sales myself. Some would say I still do, and I kind of agree with them. Oh no, you definitely do. That's for sure. Um, so no, you're yeah, you're right. It is that is definitely the first sale. But and a lot of these people, I've already, you know, I guess quote unquote sold myself to. We're, we're friends. We've been our business partners, and and for a long time. And you know, I've built that rapport with them. It's just now they see this the other side of Evan, I guess, and they're like, whoa, where where did all this come from? So, and it was actually kind of funny. One of the guys that was really debating me, I sent him some links to a couple of your shows and he's a listener now. So, um, so it doesn't always have a bad ending. Oh, no, no, of course. I mean, you know, but it's like you, you push a thousand calls to, to make one big sale, right? Right. Sometimes. Hey, you know what? And it's just one at a time, right? Right. Now, I mean, Trump does break people. I mean... (laughs) The Trump does break people, and uh, he he breaks people on the left. He breaks people on the right because, of course, you know, uh, p- people on the left have been dying to put in the Bush lied, people died meme. I mean, the idea that that someone on the left, this like code pink stuff, like they go and scream at a a Republican rally that uh, Bush lied and people died, right? This is, ah, the left have been dying to get that. Like they could rent someone's forehead and print that on, they would, right? Mm-hmm. And so then when Donald Trump says right in the middle of a <laughs> presidential, ra- oh, sorry, a, a nomination debate, right? A caucus debate. When he says to Jeb Bush, your brother lied us into war. I mean, people on the left is like, I hate him. I love him. I hate him. I love him. I hate him. I love him. It's like, wait, he's he wants to keep our selected people out of the country. I hate him. Wait, he's pointing out that the war in Iraq was horribly unjust, brutal and evil and in violation of the international war crime of aggression, which is the worst thing you could conceivably do. So I love him again. And and this is the thing, right? I mean, people love him and they hate him. And a lot of libertarians are like, well, I can't believe he wants to build a wall. You know, well, Ron Paul wanted to build a wall. <laughs> Ron Paul build wall. Good. Trump built wall, fascist. I mean, he just, he snaps people in two like a twig. They simply don't know how to handle an alpha male. 
I mean, I don't know. Is it the last one was Reagan? It's hard to tell, right? The, the Bushes all seem like <laughs> Bush boys, right? They're kind of mama's boys. But, uh, you know, he, he just... He just breaks people in two. Like, they simply don't know how to process because he's not... Trump causes you to think if, if you want, right? And, and if you're willing to think, then, okay, you can say, well, he proposes this. Agree with it or not, at least understand why it's popular. You know, like, I right. mean, you know, if you want people to quit smoking, at least understand the mechanics and biology of nicotine addiction. You know, like what it does. If you want to cure people, at least understand the ideology of the disease and so on, right? And so Trump is saying things outside the really predictable mainstream narrative, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really boringly predictable, that, uh, that the mainstream narrative is going to go, yeah, Democrats are going to promise a whole bunch of stuff and Democrats are going to pander to people who don't so much like with the working and Republicans are going to talk tough because they want to promise lots of money to the military industrial complex and they're going to pretend to talk tough on um, immigration to get the votes of the voting base and then they're going to cave and give out H1B visas like uh, candy on Halloween because their big ticket donors want the cheap labor and so... Trump doesn't like he's got like one foot in the left, one foot in the right and and is mixing things up and he's doing stuff that the left will totally cheer for. And he's doing stuff that the right will totally cheer for. He's doing stuff the left hates. He's doing stuff the right hates. So what does that mean? It means that he's not repeating talking points. He's not someone you've heard before. And what that means is that you have to actually think about what he's saying. You have to think about what he's saying because he's not politically correct. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeb, Jeb, he's like Cher, he's like Sting, he's like Madonna. He's like, the last name is so toxic, it has to be erased. I'm just a one-syllable cuck now. <laughs> Tapioca uh, pudding, well, if you put it one time, I like that Yeah, one. no, I mean, this is like <laughs> monodimensional, cucktastic what of and doesn't he seem to have such a hard on for trump i mean i watched the debate the other night and it was like the first words out of his mouth were you know trump 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 and it's just so funny really he's just he always Which only shows that he does not him. understand yeah it, it just shows that he simply does not understand um the trump you know if you're saying trump 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 how do you think donald trump feels about that? right <laughs> hey Thanks for using my name. You know, it's an old saying about the media. I don't care what you say about me. Just make sure you spell my name right. Exactly. And, and, any publicity is uh, good publicity, right? You know, just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I just, any guy who's in his 60s who's still talking about his mom, I don't know. Anyway, it's a whole other thing. So, um, so, so Trump doesn't come from a predefined area. And so he's challenging people to think dynamically. And he's also challenging people from the realm of self-interest, right? Because Trump is, you know, and I'm going to get lots of flack for saying this, but I don't care <laughs> fundamentally. I mean, flack only tells you that you're flying over the target and that people don't want you to be there. But there's some essence of Trump that is Randian in nature. And, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons why I don't have as much of a problem with him as some other people do. The reason being that Trump is focused on the self-interest of Americans, Right. This is this is really tough for people to process because Trump is Randian in the sense as he's saying, OK, what is in it for America to have 
hundreds of thousands of Muslims to come in every year. What? What is the well, what is the value? Now, Jeb, it's like, it's an act of love. It's like, okay, well, you you married a Mexican hobbit, so I guess it's an act of love for her to be with you, but I don't know about everyone else who's not getting rim jobs. <laughs> and so his idea that that we should look, like he's basically saying, we should try and figure out if it benefits America. And this is Coulter's point as well, which he says, look, we want to bring in immigrants who are better than we are, not immigrants who are worse than we are. When did America become like the battered woman's shelter of the world where we've got to bring all these craptastic people in who are traumatized and broken, right? We need to bring in people better than ourselves. So this fundamental question with regards to immigration is, okay, what is the benefit to white Christian Americans to have a lot of non-English speaking Hispanics come in who have very little education, who may have low IQ genetics following in their trail in some Watson hell manner. What is the benefit to America to have all of these people come into the country? And, you know, this look at welfare usage, right? Native usage among welfarists, it's lower among whites, is 30%. Among immigrants, it's 51%. Among illegal immigrants, it's 62%. So among illegal immigrants, there is twice the welfare consumption than there is among Native Americans and the natives. So why would you want, on balance, why would you want them to uh, to come in? It makes It makes no sense whatsoever. So the fact that Trump is saying basically, okay, ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. Why would you want a bunch of traumatized people from a war in the Middle East to come to your country when their ideology specifically demands that they conquer you <laughs> in as aggressive a manner as humanly possible? Why would you want that? And people say, oh, well, lots of people aren't like that. And, and of course, of course, lots of peaceful Muslims. I, I get that. But so what? what like, if you got to choose between someone from like a, a white English speaking person and someone from Syria who's got, you know, bad teeth and war trauma, why would you? Why would you like, what is the benefit to America? So this idea that America, and this is sort of the guilt ridden thing I was talking about with the first caller, America's rich, therefore it must have stolen all the money from the other people and stolen all the resources from all of those wonderful 17th century sub-Saharan capitalist overlords who just had glittering castles and cathedrals of floating cities like Lando Calrissian should be the mayor. Hey, see, I worked in a color reference there. Anyway, so Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, sorry. <laughs> Likes typing stuff for me. Yeah, because you know, he's a son of a Syrian immigrant or whatever. But anyway, so Trump is basically saying, okay, well, if we're going to negotiate trade deals, we should negotiate trade deals to the benefit of the United States. And what is the value of H-1B visas, like all of these people coming in and undercutting uh, Americans' uh, income? What is the value of having all of these people come in and undercut salaries, particularly of lower income workers? I mean, it's particularly harmful to the blacks, which is why a lot of the blacks are supporting Trump, because all of the people coming across the border are driving down the price of wages for lower skilled people of whom the blacks are disproportionately represented. So he's basically saying, okay, Ask yourself, look in the mirror, throw aside political correctness, throw aside white guilt, throw aside the eternal obligation, the white man's burden to make the whole planet better and so on. Just in the dark of night, two o'clock in the morning, pad into your bathroom, switch the light on half, look into your bloodshot, roomy, white guilt ridden eyes and say to yourself, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's beneficial for me? And this is really dangerous, right? Because, again, with reference to the first caller, the, the, the parasitical classes rely on guilt 
to make it efficient because they don't want to come and take stuff from you by hand, right? Like like with the first caller, you might have a gun. <laughs> it's not really comfortable, right? And so they need you to feel guilty. And so when the maker class of every ethnicity, when the maker class says, well, wait a minute here, let's pretend just for a moment, let's just pretend for a moment, I don't feel a shred of guilt. And it's true. Listen, I don't feel any guilt about slavery. I don't feel any guilt about the oppression of blacks. Hired blacks, I've worked with them. I have no, um, I have no guilt about any of this stuff. And so what if you don't feel any guilt? Then the next question is, okay, well, if I'm not doing a particular action in order to assuage or take off my shoulders this crushing burden of white guilt, what's in it for me? What, how is it better for my kids if there are now 10 new kids who speak eight different languages in the class? Like, how is that good for me as a taxpayer? How does that enhance the quality of my children's education? Now, of course, what you get back with multiculturalism is a strength, diversity is a value, multiculturalism is a right? And it's just a chant. It's a chant that's supposed to just make you go, okay, okay, I guess I'll believe you. But the moment you ask for evidence, the moment you ask for evidence, okay, outside of music and outside of food, uh, what's the benefit, again, of multiculturalism? Well, nobody can actually answer you. So that issue is, um, is pretty important. So Trump is really, really tough for people because this is what he said, you know, when he first, when Megyn Kelly tried to take him on at the beginning with his you hate women stuff or you're a misogynist or whatever, he said, listen, Megyn, I don't have time and neither does America have time for total political correctness. And that is a very, political correctness is a way of getting you infected with guilt so you don't ask yourself, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? How are your children's education going to be enhanced and improved? And how is your life going to be enhanced and improved by having people come in who take welfare at twice, twice the rate of the domestic population, with whom there are significant uh, integration issues culturally, uh, religiously, uh, linguistically, um, historically? Uh, forget it, right? I mean, w what is the benefit? What is the benefit? And the fact that Trump represents, I believe, the maker class, and when the maker class shrugs aside the guilt that is the constant infection from political correctness, shrugs aside the guilt and says, okay, what's in this for me? How do I benefit from this? Well, then the parasite class runs out of blood to feed on, and they don't like it, which is why the hysterical attacks against Trump is a way of trying to shut the maker class up, shut the productive classes up, get the fuck back into your feeding pens and give us more Milk, more blood, more meat. So shut the fuck up and get back to doing your work so that we can sit around and not. So, and, and can I tell you one other thing? Yeah, go ahead. All right. You're new to this fight. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Philosophy. Now, with added ostracism. <laughs> so, um, you're new to this fight, so this is going to take you a little while but i'm just going to give you it's just a little it's a little marker down the road for you to mull over when you get there oh my friend the suffering it cometh suffering is coming and right now i'm not sure i don't really believe that it can be avoided um it would take such an effort of will from those of us who've achieved some form of illumination, uh, which I have not seen coming from any particular group despite many years of exhortations. So I'd 
think based upon the decisions of people who understand these matters to not confront those around them with the true reality and the moral horror of what they propose, it is kind of a done deal at the moment. So suffering is coming. And let me tell you, let me tell you something, Evan. This is the great liberty of being helpful. (laughs) Being helpful to other people. Now, being helpful to other people, you know, giving them the truth, giving them the evidence, giving them the reason, accelerating their understanding, uh, handing out all the free goodies that lifetimes of dedicated work have produced in you and me and others uh, is wonderful on, on two, because it has one of two outcomes. Either people listen to you and accept the reason and evidence behind what you say, or, you know, improve what you're saying by bringing better reason and evidence, which is a very productive conversation. So they can listen to you in which case they join you in the fight to free the world from delusion and predation and so on. So either they're going to listen to you or they're not. And either way, your responsibility ends. That is the important thing. I am a very compassionate person. (laughs) I really like, I really care about the planet and I really care about the quality of kids' lives. I really care about the future. Um, You know, I've got that K-selected time tunnel to decades down the road, if not centuries, about the world that I know I want to build and I know will be far better for just about everyone. Not every gene pool and not every gene set R versus K, but it will be a better world as a whole. And in the long run, even better for those. Ours, but um, I'm a very, very compassionate person, and and the degree of my help is the degree of my compassion on two levels, right? Like, why is that I'm taking all these risks, taking all these bullets to bring the truth to the world? Because I really, really want to help the world. Now, the danger of my level of compassion is that the world won't listen to me because they'll say, wow, this guy really cares about the future. He really cares about goodness. He really cares about helping people. So he'll give us help when the shit hits the fan. You know, he'll just, you know, he'll just help us. You know, we'll take his money, we'll take his resources, we'll take the food in his basement, we'll take his house. You know, he'll just, and he'll be happy to give it up because he's such a compassionate person. But compassion without discipline is egregious self-sabotage. You know, um, an excess of compassion, an excess of generosity is a sin and a crime, as I've said many times before. And so the reason, one of the reasons why I help to this degree the world is so that those who listen are my brothers and sisters. And those who don't, I don't care. And this is the discipline that I really strongly suggest, Evan, that you start adopting within yourself. Um, I will give as much of my skills and abilities and rhetoric and reasoning capacities and compassion and curiosity and all the virtues that I possess, I will spray uh, across the world like a tsunami as best I can. Because then, when I've expended this amount of effort trying to educate the planet, and I think very successfully doing so, when I've expended this level of energy to educate the planet, I will feel no guilt on shutting my door to those who didn't listen. Because I gave them every conceivable opportunity to listen, to learn. And that is a very, very important thing to understand. Compassion must be reciprocal in the long run. It must be earned and it must be fiercely guarded. And you must only give compassion to those who have listened to reason. Because people are going to come clamoring to you. They're going to come clamoring to me when the floor collapses. 
and the economy craters. They're going to come running and they're going to come begging. And you need to have earned your way to rational indifference to their plight. Uh, this sounds harsh, and, and I recognize that, but it is something that if people think, like if, if, you've, if you've got some shifty brother-in-law and you, you just keep lending him money and keep lending him money, and every time he runs out of money, he comes up with some new, I'm going to run a lawn servicing company using only tweezers and <laughs> kid scissors and nail clippers. So give me 5000 Like if you keep giving this to him, it's really bad for him. It's not compassion. That's just buying someone, it's buying peace by having someone leave you alone for another two weeks. And so at some point, like once you've given him enough money, you can't, you have bought indifference to his fate because you've given him as much opportunity. And it's not just money. Like maybe you help him with his business. You introduce him to people. You really help him out. And you can earn your way to indifference through generosity. Now, the big mistake most people make is they're generous and that people don't listen to their generosity and they don't listen to any standards because they say, well, this guy's always going to bail me out. People think the bailouts is the bank, the, the bailout of the banks, the bailout of the entire financial system is just an effect of people bailing out others through an excess of compassion in their personal lives. Everything else flows from that. You know, I want people to know that after I have spent 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years or however much time the ghost of Socrates can prop me up for, when the shit hits the fan, I will have worked hard enough to not give a flying fuck about what happens to people who haven't listened. And that's a discipline I have to maintain within myself. You know, if you've offered people endless amounts of help and you've said, I'll come and... and um, help you build your barn and I'll help you plant your crops and I'll put up a scarecrow and I'll teach you all about farming. And, you know, if they're then idiots and just eat all their seed crop and so on, they're going to come hungry in the winter. You got to close your door. You've got to close your door because it's the only way. Unfortunately, it's the only way that fools learn is through pain. And so the, the great value of bringing the truth to people is that you get to not care about the people who don't listen. Because they didn't care about you when you brought them the truth. They didn't care about your feelings. They didn't care about your pride. They didn't care about your self-respect, right? Let's say that you come in with some positive things to say about Trump. And then people are like, ah, oh, Trump is a ham-colored, orange-haired orangutan who is a racist, sexist, xenophobic guy who whatever, whatever, right? Okay, well, do they care about your feelings? This is someone you care about, someone who think has something valuable to say. I had the same experience when I would bring some of my treasured writers to my friends when I was younger. You know, the Dostoevsky's and the Ayn Rand and the Turgenev and the Dickens and other people I just thought were fantastic, whose language I could taste like ripe fruit in the winter. And they were like, yeah, I'll get to it. You know, or when I wrote novels, I wrote novels and poems and I'd hand them out to my friends to read. You know, I had a friend of mine, he was going to go, Jesus, I shouldn't even say, he was going to go to work in the Arctic. <laughs> he was going to work, no TV, no cell phones, no tablets. This is long before you, there were no tablets. This is like many, many decades ago. He was going to go work in the Arctic. And I'd written a novel and I'd used his name for one of the characters. It was a novel about the First World War. And I 
printed it out. And this is back about three cents a page to print this stuff out. I mean, it was expensive stuff. I didn't have much money. So I printed out a copy and I brought it over to him and said, hey, man, you're going to go work up in the Arctic for four months. Here's a copy of my novel. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, I don't think I'm going to get to it. I'm like, what? You're in the Arctic for four months. What, are you going to be busy with the puppetry of the penis, for God's sakes? I mean, take a book. (laughs) But what he did was he brought up a whole bunch. He he had this belief that um, he was going to be able to figure out how to make money off horse racing. So he bought a whole bunch of clips. He'd been saving clips of, like, horse racing results for years. He's going to do a mathematical analysis and figure out which horses were going to win, which, you know, even an idiot knows is nonsense, right? But it's like (laughs) he couldn't – like, he wouldn't read my book. Now – there's the, you know, you go ask a woman out and she says, you know, I'll, I'll be busy. I have to clean my phone. <laughs> like, you just know that's a non, but I'm too busy in a tent in the Arctic for four months to read your novel. I mean, <laughs> come on, right? But the beauty was that after that, I didn't have to give a shit about what he wanted. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the liberation of offering people something that, you know, is a good book, you know, it's fun to read and I, you know. And um, that's the great, like that's so be generous with people, be generous, be as kind and as nice as you can the first time you meet people. And after that, you treat them as they treat you. And if they don't give a shit about your preferences, if they're fine with blowing away something that you treasure and you care about and they just reject and scorn and, you know, heap abuse on, on all that, God. Well, and the, one of the good things is that um, – Two of my closest friends have actually been the ones that are most passionately been turned on to you. So it's kind of like a affirmation or a confirmation of the two of my closest friends that kind of that did take the time to listen and did get it. So that is nice. Right. So there will come a time when there will be hands scratching at your door one way or another, you know, metaphorically or, or literally. And um, you got to be closed when that day comes. Yeah, and it actually, I mean, it doesn't really sound all that harsh to me. It it just makes sense. Um, you know, that, you might find it tougher when there's people at the door hungry. Well, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But, but the concept doesn't sound harsh or un, unsympathetic or incompassionate, compassionate or whatever. It, it just you know take the emotion out of it. It makes sense. You know. I tried to care about you. I extended a, a piece of knowledge that could help, and you you shot it down, and there there we are. Right, you're not talking about me, but your friends, friends. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, in terms of like, so you'll get lots of rejection, and you'll you know lots of people will call you crazy, or bad, an idiot, a fool, whatever, right? Okay, well, so that's great. That's just people you don't have to care about in the future, and it's liberate. It's liberalizing. It's liberating. Sorry, I don't know what the hell that last word was. It's liberating, right? I mean, there is a clarity in authenticity that is beautiful. You know, there's an old saying that says, I would rather be hated for who I am than loved for who I am not. And once you are truly yourself and share your passions with those around you, some people will love you. Some people will hate you. A lot of people will be indifferent. And you can repay like with like and make sure that you keep those who you love close and discard those who hate you or even worse or indifferent for who you genuinely are it's a wonderful moment of clarity and it is particularly tough for those 
uh, with whom the majority or maybe all of the people around them are scorning who they are. So. And the, the uh, beautiful thing yeah. about it is... That, that's, that's the plus to get out of these conflicts. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say, the beautiful thing about that is you, you know where you stand with them, or I know where I stand with them, and then uh, it, it just, like you said, it makes it so much clearer, and you really find out who your true allies are. Yeah, they're not rejecting you, Evan. They are liberating you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like, I used to... Like, I, I, used to I, mean, I was such a confident guy i mean i still am obviously in many ways but when i was dating literally if like if a woman said no to me for going out with me it literally was like wow what's your what's problem wrong with you like, <laughs> i mean god are you kidding me yeah i'm a good looking guy got a nice body smart guy well read pretty funny good conversation list like you know it's like that old joke about the philosopher diogenes uh who said, ah, I, I would give the world for one honest person. And there was some New Yorker cartoon where Diogenes was standing there saying, actually, I was, he's standing, a guy was, a short guy was standing in front of him, who was the most, most honest guy. And he's saying, actually, to be honest, I was hoping for a slightly taller, honest person. And this, <laughs> I can't just like, okay, what, what are you people looking at? What, as a woman, would you be looking for? Um, I'm ambitious. I'm going to make some decent coin in my life. I'm smart. And, uh, and so for me, it was like, when I'm rejected, it's not like, what's wrong with me? It's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, wh- why would you want to go to some other show? Like, why would you want to go to some other, you know, like, talking head? I mean, this is the best stuff that there is. I genuinely believe that. It's the best show in the world. And maybe the best show that ever will be because it is the first best show of this kind in the world. Populist philosophy reaching hundreds uh, uh, of millions of downloads. So, so, so this is the thing. When people reject you... Okay, what's wrong with them? And it doesn't really matter. But it liberates you from making sure that you can concentrate your resources into people smart enough to appreciate who you are and what you're doing. I agree 100%. All right. Well, on that note, I'll start to quit while I'm ahead and uh, move on to the next caller. That's all right. Um, Can I say one more thing real quick? And it's real fast. Um, I noticed in the last few shows you were talking about how – you, know, you gain a lot of listeners and you lose them because you'll say something that they don't like and the people on the left will think you're um, a Republican or a right-wing guy and the people on the right will think you're a left-wing guy. And Just to set the record straight, um, I've you've pissed me off a few times with things you've said, but I'm not here to have my beliefs reaffirmed. I'm here to learn and uh, for personal growth. So just for the record, I won't be one of the ones that run off because you made me mad at some point. Um I just looked in the mirror and said, well, he's right, and moved on. Can, can you just do me a favor, though? Mm-hmm. Can you just do me a tiny favor, Evan? Yeah. Can you can you just scream at me building seven and then hang up? <laughs> would, you, would, you, would you do that for me? Would you do that for the show? <clears throat> well, I would if I ever really bought into the World Trade Center conspiracy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> building seven, click. It's a smoking gun. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, thanks, man. A real pleasure to chat. I hope we can talk again. Yeah. Have a good one. Thank you. Take care. Bye. I was going to suggest that you scream Building 7 and <laughs> hang out, but, you know, kept doing that during the actual debates. <sighs> All right. Well, up next is. You got to find someone better to debate with. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're going to screen everyone. <laughs> And make sure that they have a PhD in her before they come on. It's a call-in show, people. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, up next, we have our very first superhero. I'm calling him in his Batcave right now via his Bat phone. Donald? 
<laughs> Donald? No, 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 it's not Donald. We have Black Hood. Are you there, Black Hood? Yes, I am. Hello. All right, let me just read your question real quick. Calling me intrigued, Mike. I'm. Hang on. A bit of a surprise. <laughs> I'm, I'm just adjusting myself here. Black Hood? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the Black alias Hood. I go you know, by. If you're talking about your penis, you might want to get that looked at. But, uh, okay. <laughs> it might not say that. Well, being as I'm a Caucasian male, some Caucasian males would find that to be a blessing. <laughs> I already like Blackhood. All right, you wrote it yeah, instead. Yeah. I'm part of the initiative. I'm just. I'm gonna just relax. He can do the show from here. <laughs> I'm part of an initiative called the Real Life Superheroes. We are normal citizens that have devoted our lives to fighting injustice in the world by patrolling our cities and addressing homelessness in our communities through handouts and support. My two-part question to Stefan is: Do you think the world needs heroes? Do you think society will ever truly accept? what we're doing. That is from Black Hood. Well, very uh, very nice to meet you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing wonderful, Stefan. How about yourself? Uh, very well, thank you. And uh, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate you calling in, you know, and, shaking it up. Uh, I it. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been a fan of the show for quite a while. I've been listening for about a year or so. Um, I definitely deeply want to thank you for what you've done for this world just generally in bringing awareness uh and education as an advocate for child protection and equal rights you're truly a modern day socrates definitely i appreciate that hopefully with a slightly different ending but uh i appreciate <laughs> the comparison it's very kind so t you tell me a little bit more about this um the um the world that you're working in uh well, it's it's an interesting one, definitely. Uh, as uh, Michael read there, we're uh, I guess what you'd call an initiative. We uh, we're we're just ordinary Joes and uh, Jolines that go out, uh, you know, every day and every night, or maybe a couple nights a week or a couple of nights. All right, hang on, hang on. Okay, ordinary Joes, superheroes. Okay, if you, are you Clark Kent. And Superman, because that's a little hard to, like, <laughs> ordinary, but doing extraordinary things. So are we taking the superhero entrance door, or are we taking the ordinary folks entrance I don't, door here? I, I don't know. We don't, uh, we're not, you know, for prestige, we're not looking for, you know, recognition or anything of the sort. Like, we're, our, just our general uh, mission is just to, uh, to uh, you know, bring uh, bring awareness to uh, to what's going on in the world and to... Uh, just do what we can as just uh, ordinary citizens. So, I mean, if you wanted well, to. Well, but there is the superhero thing, right? Because you could be doing all this stuff uh, without the superhero thing. Oh, I don't have yeah. any problem with the superhero oh, thing. I'm I, just kind of curious if that's the icing on the uh, the cake of kindness. I, yeah, I think, I think, um, I can't speak for everyone. I mean, and, and not even for myself, but I think for some, it's, uh, especially some people that have been through traumatic experiences and such, I, I find, especially like rape victims, it's, it's kind of uh, empowering. It helps them kind of get uh, power back in their lives. And I, I think that the whole uh, persona, this whole superhero persona, it, it, it helps with that. It's almost like a, a positive healing uh, aspect of it. It lets you connect to, the greatness within you, as far as I understand it, which right. I'm fully in favor of. Uh, so um, the, the superhero allows you to adopt a persona that may not be a false persona, but may be an extrapolation of abilities that you have to abilities that you suspect you have, not supernatural ones, of course, but yeah, capacities of character like courage and commitment and clarity and so on 
that uh, it's an elevation from your ordinary persona, but it's not any the less real in terms of it's something that you genuinely experience and, and achieve. Is that a fair way of putting it? That, that, that's well said. I, I would I would definitely uh, agree with uh, with that description. Um, I, I find sometimes it's hard. It, it really is hard sometimes to uh, decide what the mask is, whether it's, you know, your your the mask that you wear when you go to work every day and when you're around your friends or such. Or it's the mask that you put on when you go out at night and uh, go on patrols or go uh, go on missions to help uh, the homeless or or what have you. Like, it's really hard to distinguish sometimes what uh, what your actual mask is. I mean, since you you've grown as this person, whether through traumatic experiences or it's just something that you adopted in your life, uh, it definitely it's it's hard to distinguish between the two at times. It's a great line from a song. Um... Uh, I'm not a man with too many faces. The mask I wear is one. And um, so this idea that you can do something extraordinary if you have an alter ego right. is something that is, I think, very well known to most public people. I mean, people have a public face that, of course, is generally different from their uh, private lives, right? I mean, you, you when you're public facing, you know, like Freddie Mercury would say, you know, like I'm... <laughs> You know, when I'm not on, like people like see him on the set, rock star and powerful and confident and so on. When I'm not performing, I like to drink tea and gossip. Um, and Kevin Spacey was talking about how he likes to get together with other actors and just gossip about everyone's career. And he's not exactly, you know, Frank Underwood or a giant grasshopper. Uh, so, so the <laughs> fact that you might have a different persona when you're public facing or when you're engaged in a larger mission is... Um, something that is not surprising to me. I mean, I occasionally will try to sort of do a show like I'm actually just talking to someone in a room because, you know, this is a way of talking that is not exactly like how I chat with someone. You know, the content may be the same. The form be a little different. And so having a sort of public persona uh, and being able to achieve more through the adoption of that public persona, I think is um, is perfectly natural and perfectly valid. You know, Freddie Mercury probably sang in the shower with... 19 other rough sex fellows but uh so freddie mercury would sing in the shower and he'd be humming to himself or working on a song or whatever but he wouldn't be stalking around the shower in leotards you know slinking around like some souped up michael hutchin cat on steroids <laughs> because he's just at home right so right. he's not doing the whole performance thing right and i think that aspect of things is kind of natural again as a superhero you would be public facing and trying to do more than you would if you were just as dressed ordinarily and the costume is a way of reminding yourself to not be who you were only if that makes sense oh it does very much so like you were saying there we all have uh, many different faces about us and uh the one that we put on at night or what have you whenever we go out it's uh it's definitely uh one that helps us uh, do the job a lot better, I find. So this, you know, it's a um, it's a bit of a cliche, but there is something I think of value to it, which is everybody has to project a future persona that they can climb towards if they want to achieve something out of the ordinary. You have to picture yourself doing something great. If you want to achieve something great, first of all, you generally start from a place that does not encourage greatness, you know, whether it's your government school or maybe a family that wants to play it small, as a lot of families tend to want to do. You start in a place that is not 
going to encourage greatness within you. And in order to break through that, you need to project yourself as doing something great before you get there. And you don't know if you're going to get there. Right. And, you know, this is another line from a song I was talking about with my daughter the other day from uh, Peter Gabriel's song. And he says, um, uh, all of the buildings and all of the cars were once just a dream in somebody's head. And this idea that something is going to exist in reality because you first pictured it in your mind. It can be a car. It can be a building. It can be a painting. It can be an achievement, almost a personality structure. Uh, when I was a kid, I thought of myself as an adult that I was going to be sensible. I was going to wear a tie. I was going to have a professional job. I was going to have a wife. I was going to, you know, have, have kids. I was going to live in a nice place. You know, these are nothing to do with my environment. My environment, I was like, I was like one step up from a lean-to growing up with eviction notices uh, pouring in regularly. But you project that forward to say, well, my future is not going to be a photocopy of the place of the hellhole that I crawled out of. And... To achieve that, you have to wish it, you have to believe it first, right? The visualization, uh, you know, you dream of the Oscar and you can get the Oscar. If you never dream of the Oscar, you won't take the steps necessary to get it. And the, the dream is not the same thing as the reality, but the dream is necessary, although not sufficient to achieve it. So I can completely understand that if you want to do something out of the ordinary, that you have to project a persona that can achieve that. And that's what you use as sort of the repel hook to fire up and climb over the wall of self-skepticism to achieve. Uh, yes, and that's all correct. Um, I, I mean, your your environment growing up or just in your daily life definitely does have an uh, impact on what it is that you do in life, but uh, overall it doesn't have to be the deciding factor of said life. So tell me about um, how this uh, came about for you. What was the um, ideology of adopting this um, approach? I, I won't go, you know, it's for, I'm, I won't go into full uh, detail as I, I, I do want to stay anonymous, but uh, I, uh, I grew up uh, in a very traumatic, uh, very traumatic uh, environment. Um, There's a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect, um, went through foster care until about age 11. And uh, it definitely, uh, definitely changes a child and then as you go through your teens you start to act out uh, there's a lot of anger there's a lot of you know, just repressed rage in general um, and uh, I, I think from there on you need to have something to grasp onto and some somehow something some, some, some it, I guess it takes a not a special kind of person but it, it you know there's only you know a small handful of us actually do this and uh, I think uh, these individuals that this kind of lifestyle touches, it, you know, it starts as a starts as a tingle in your bones, and then it becomes just this uncontrollable itch that you can't scratch, and then you know it just becomes a full fledged uh, ideology, and then before you know it, you know this is this is the life that you've you've kind of fallen into, or that you've uh, started for yourself, I guess. Was was sorry, didn't uh, was and I'm obviously very very sorry to hear about your history. I mean that's something horrendous. Oh, and no. and to to get to adulthood with a sense of your original self still intact. I mean people don't know. Um, you know when I was a kid, they they used to have these egg cup races, and you put an egg on a little teaspoon, and you'd try and run it. I mean that's what it's like when you're trying to protect anything healthy about yourself, when you're in, a, in an extraordinarily dysfunctional environment, the amount of mental effort and strength that that takes to, to protect the 
secret flame of your hidden heart from the general high pissing of abusers around you. It's a huge amount of, of effort and, and energy. And, you know, people wonder why you have a lack of focus in, in other things. It's like because I'm doing this egg cup race where if I drop the egg, I die. I die in all the ways that are meaningful to me. And the strain of maintaining any healthy sense of identity while going through, you know, crawling through the barbed wire and exploding shrapnel of an abusive environment is something that I don't wish for anyone to go through it. But those who haven't uh, really have a tough time understanding the degree to which it sharpens your mind and those who survive it with their true self intact are relatively indestructible. And that is um, that is a tough thing for people outside to see, right? I mean, the amount of verbal abuse that gets thrown at this show sometimes, you know, can be extraordinary. And, you know, if I really didn't like people, I'd respond to it and let it affect my course, right? But because I want to cure them of the effects of verbal abuse doesn't, you know, it's like water off his duck's back. I keep doing what I'm doing because when a weapon doesn't work, you throw it aside with disgust and people keep firing stuff at me and at others. And the healthy thing, of course, for the, for yourself and for others is to say, well, this just all this does is reveal you. It doesn't reveal anything about me. And the hope is, of course, that people will then abandon verbal abuse. So they'll escalate for a while. Then they'll abandon it as a weapon that doesn't work. Uh, and it's tough for people uh, if you've gone through this kind of basic training, this kind of boot camp of uh, surviving predation as a child it's hard for you seem like a superhero to other people because things which would really bother them uh don't bother me i mean you know what are people going to be like my childhood <laughs> right not really that's never going to happen again sorry uh but but that may be where some of the superhero aspect comes for you in that you have survived that which would make a superhero out of everyone who survives it and not that many people survive it well as I was stating there um, earlier, it, it's, uh, again, I think it takes a special kind of mindset. Um, you know, growing up, there wasn't, uh, I, I grew up in a small town and, you know, there were, there was no professional support. There were no therapists or psychiatrists to, to talk to, to help me get to some type of normalcy in, in my life. Um, so I think that, I think I definitely adapted the hero persona quite early on. I think it was something that I could relate to. And, you know, just growing up, uh, pretty much having a TV as a babysitter, it's uh, definitely you start to relate uh, to these to these fictitious uh, individuals that uh, that are strong and uh, unbreakable. And that's, you know, th those are your those are your role models. Those are who you start to relate to. And uh uh, kind of adapt your your own mindset to, to become. And I, I mean, again, this is fiction. We're living in real life. I'm not bulletproof or what have you. But again, it doesn't uh, it doesn't change that uh, that reality where you start to to adapt to that uh, to that fake universe, I guess. In a, in a matter of speaking. Yeah, I think that there is a kind of echo blowback to all extremes of personality. And, and, and if you push someone down, and what happens is you elevate another aspect of their mind. Everything in the psyche strives for balance, I believe, like things in nature. And when you uh, push someone down a lot, when you grind someone down, when someone feels oppressed, there is a part of them that escapes that fist by going up to the very stars themselves. And this is, I think, some of the development of abstract thought, uh, high ambitions, lofty goals uh, comes out of 
this being crushed, escaping from it. You don't run far away from a cat, but you will run far away in the opposite direction from a tiger or a lion. And so there is opposition in trauma that can create, I think, some very lofty, lofty aspects to, uh, to the personality. And you have to kind of be your own hero. If there is no heroism in your environment exactly. and you're in desperate need of it, right. you will produce it for yourself and open up some possibilities in the future that otherwise wouldn't have been there. And that's why I agree upon uh, what, what you state about, uh, you know, a child needing, needing two parents, needing, you know, a, a mother for her, uh, her nurturing in uh, feminine ways and a father for, uh, you know, everything that he brings to the table as well. Um, there definitely does need to be a two parent uh, household. Otherwise the child lacks, uh, lacks or for want of, of those other inherited things that, uh, he'd need develop to develop a oh, yeah, healthy and, uh healthy mind and this is just part of the general female in-group preference stuff that's going on these days that um apparently men can't really understand what it's like to be a woman because we're not women but apparently single moms are really great at raising boys because they know everything about what it's like i to don't be a agree boy. with it's that just uh i was at the uh store uh if, if you don't mind just just a short story i was at yeah. the uh, store uh, a couple days ago and um there was a there was a mother there with her daughter. What your daughter is? What six seven? Uh, seven. Seven. Okay. So daughter probably roughly your age, but uh, the little boy must have been you know three three or four, and you know boys boy, boys will be boys. Boys aren't quiet. You know boys aren't quiet. They're loud. I mean for the most part they're they're a little rambunctious at that age and. They want attention and, you know, he's just a little boy. And I think, uh, from what I was witnessing, you know, he was asking, asking for something. I think he was just asking for his mother's attention and she just hauled off and swatted him. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, like, what can, what can someone that's a quarter of your size, you know, absolutely defenseless have done to you to deserve deserves such a horrible thing and she comes up to me she sees she sees that i noticed and she came up to me and tried to shake it off you know it was just a normal thing and i just looked at her and i'm like do you do you know the repercussions of what it is that you're doing through your child by demonstrating that kind of behavior you know your son could grow up to be a woman abuser he could grow up to be absolutely anti-women especially with, you know, the MGTOWN movements and what's going on now, like he could just grow, grow up to resent you completely. You know, like I saw you with your daughter, like why, why do you treat your daughter so well? But, you know, you smack your, smack your little boy for just wanting a little bit of attention. Like he's, he's your child. He's, he's just looking for attention. He just wants your love. I, I just, I couldn't fathom it. It's just, it really, it bewildered me to tell the truth, just to see mother do that to a child. You know, you hear about it, but you never, you never, I've, I've never seen it before. Like I've, I've always heard, I've heard in your podcast and such about, you know, single mothers hitting children and that. And I mean, maybe she wasn't signal. I'm just single. I'm just assuming, you know, but uh, just to see her haul off and do that to her, to her own flesh. Well, I mean, but these days, what do women need with masculine virtues i mean the reason why women would respect masculine virtues is because certainly when they would be pregnant and breastfeeding right and when the the kids are young they would be dependent upon 
men providing for them. So they would have to respect and value the masculine virtues of, um, you know, men have to have this dual life and it's more than dual, but they have to be aggressive out there in the marketplace and they have to be tender and loving at home. And, um, you know, this is one of the challenges of women too. I mean, the, the women want the alpha male who's out there getting a lot of resources, but then they also want the, uh, you know, sensitive, artistic, loving guy at home. And um, it's a kind of a dual role that, that men have to play. And women will often go for the alpha male, the high status, high earning, high potential male, and then complain that he's emotionally unavailable. It's like, well, yeah, that's how he's out there getting all of these resources, because sometimes it's win-lose and you have to not be empathetic with the person who's losing when you're getting resources. Um, and so the, the complexity of male virtues, this, this aggression or assertiveness in the marketplace or in the hunt, I guess, in the past, and the tender concern, love and solicitousness at home, uh, it, it's complex and it's, it's challenging for men. And so men sometimes go on the too aggressive side, uh, which uh, has them be somewhat dysfunctional, or they go on the, uh, the too sympathetic, empathetic, girly side, uh, and thus become, you know, basement-dwelling Xbox-addicted uh, cucks and um, let civilization slide through their fingers. But uh, so, you know, so male virtues is something that men have to navigate and women have to respect and also navigate. Uh, the woman has to balance. So the man who's better with the kids may not be as great out there in the marketplace. The man who's better out in the marketplace may not be so great with kids. This is what uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, two out of three ain't bad was his argument. Like he was not a good husband, but he was a good father. And his kids seem to be uh, have turned out pretty well. You know, Donald Trump wasn't spanked and uh, his kids weren't spanked. He didn't spank his uh, kids. And so you see, you know, when you see Donald Trump wanting to use the Chinese to negotiate with North Korea versus people like Ted Cruz saying they want to blow the whole place up or would certainly consider doing it. Well, there you're seeing somebody who was raised uh, rationally, somebody who was raised. And this is all big advertisement for freedom and radio principles. Not perfect, but not um, not entirely occluded either. Uh, here you can see on the stage, um, Ted Cruz uh, hits his uh, five-year-old daughter, who there's a tragic video on the on YouTube of her trying to get away from him. And um, so the kids who were hit are the ones who reach for the sword. And the kids who weren't hit, i.e. Donald Trump, are the ones who try to negotiate because that's how they were raised. And so this is uh, peaceful parenting, um, I said, would lead to more negotiation in the international sphere. And here you have an example of Donald Trump who was relatively peacefully parented versus the other lunatics who want to blow uh, other people up. Uh, rather than let other people negotiate or negotiate directly. And um, this is a perfect example of exactly what I've been talking about for 10 years. And then people wonder why I'm interested in Donald Trump, because people just don't listen. And it's painful to see somebody who's that successful and who was peacefully parented in the same way that Steve Jobs, although, again, not a great husband or great father as far as I've been able to ascertain, uh, was also raised relatively peacefully and had a kind of confidence and dominance that came out of that in, in many ways. Not dominance over people, but uh, assertiveness, which, of course, a lot of people comes across yeah. as a dominance. So uh, just a sec. So, so for women, why would they really need to treat men well 
because they can just get all the resources they want from the state. They can right. vote for some pearly-toothed, juggier, beanpole politician who can use the power of the state to strip resources from men who despise them and hand them over. Even though the Why on earth? Yeah, the, the rapist doesn't bring you flowers. You know, he doesn't need to. He brings a switchblade to the interaction. And women's addiction to the state, yeah, why do they have to be nice to their sons? Because they don't need male virtues because the state is providing them all that male virtues used to provide to them. And until the state runs out of money with which to bribe women, um, men are going to be treated badly because men are disposable in a way that they weren't before. Men have always been disposable in, in guarding the eggs, but now they're much more disposable even because, um, you know, women can uh, get all the resources they want from the state. And if they're displeased with their uh, man, uh, they can divorce him and get all the resources from him as if they were still there, which is sort of like divorcing a woman and expecting her to still provide sex with you for the next 20 years. So why would, you know, men, uh, boys are hit more than girls uh, um, when boys and girls hand in the same work anonymized. Um, <laughs> they, they score about equal when it's when the teachers who are largely female uh, when the boys are younger, when they know it's boys, they mark them down. So boys are badly treated in school. They're badly treated at home. They're badly treated in society, which is why they're basically saying, screw it. Uh, I'm not interested in protecting a society that despises me. And the fact that men have given up wanting to protect society, uh, people don't know. You know, there's that Flintstones moment where they run off the cliff, but they're still hanging there for a moment. Well, uh, society has relied uh, and has treated its male its males well throughout a lot of times throughout history. People call this patriarchy, uh, when of course the current gynocracy is not considered matriarchy. But society's treated men well throughout history because men needed to like society in order to protect it. You're not going to protect something you dislike, and you're not going to protect a whole bunch of people who are abusing you. Which is why uh, what's happening in Europe is happening in Europe. And men men are basically saying, "Well, I don't like what's happening, but I sure as hell I'm not going to fight for a bunch of people who've been calling me a, a patriarchal pig for the past couple of generations, and I'm not going to fight." to save a society where my my father got destroyed in divorce court and never got to see his kids and the women are all feminists and haters on and, and think that I'm a, a rapist and like I'm why the hell would I want to protect a society that chews up and destroys men to this degree and doesn't even give them the honor of a ticket tape parade when they come home from war but cause them baby killers why the hell would I want to protect a society that is going to that, that hates me so much that scorns me so much where I get abused in school where I get abused at home and nobody ever has a kind word to say to me why the hell would I ever want to protect a society that up until a couple of years ago in America didn't even recognize that men could get raped as a crime why the hell why'd i want to protect this kind of society and so society because they're all running to the state and the state is being the proxy man for for all the women the societies can just dump and shit all over men and they just don't understand that the moment you start doing that your society is fucking doomed and uh so the degree to which you are pushing back against that i think is very interesting because you're out there as a man trying to do good in society, well, right? I, th I think that's just it. Um, being doing what we do, you can't, you can't be, you can't be like you have to leave all the bias and such at the door. You, you can't be biased. It's just you just have to see the society as a whole, um, and uh, it just kind of put, you know, put everything behind you and uh, just approach uh, approach uh, what needs to be. What needs to be dealt with? Um, now, what uh, what is your typical night like? What do you do when you head out <coughs> to do? Excuse me, you're good. Um, we uh, 
we suit up. We, uh, sorry, I apologize. We, uh, we talk beforehand before patrol, you know, on Facebook and just make, uh, or organize uh, where we want to meet and what area of the city that we want to cover and such, uh, what it is that we want to do that night. And then uh, we shoot up in gear and then we uh, we all meet up and then we usually patrol uh, whatever whatever area uh, we've set uh, for that night uh, from usually the hours of 11 till 4 a.m. Um, when, when things are quiet, uh, whoever's night it is to carry the backpack we call it the bitch pack. Uh, it's it's the pack that has that has all the sandwiches and you know all of the uh, water bottles and, and what have you hygiene products and uh, you know if it's quiet we'll go around and we'll find uh, the homeless in the city and we'll we'll uh, do handouts and uh, you know just spend a little bit of time with them you know just let them know that people do care that there are people out there that do give a damn that they haven't been forgotten about because um, I know. Uh, that uh, a lot of them do just in general think that, you know, think of themselves as dirt and a leech on society. And that, you know, if people just took the, the time to not just to shake them off and brush by them, you know, in their busy daily lives, that these are human beings. And the fact that they, they have stories, they have lives, they, they have. And most of these people, of course, have, uh, unless they have some sort of brain degenerative disorder, I mean, a lot of these people oh, are going to yeah. end up homeless because oh, yeah. they horrible childhoods, right? Well, childhoods uh drug abuse i know a couple of years ago they closed the uh especially the uh what were the facilities there the uh uh the facilities for the individuals with mental impairments i know a few of those were closed and uh you know the the sick had no had no place to go you know if they weren't government sponsored then they had no place to go so they ended up just being on the streets and a couple, you know, some of them, some of them do have uh, severe, severe mental problems, you know, uh, schizophrenics and what have you. I'm, I'm not going to generalize and say that they're all a danger to the community because they're not. I think, uh, you know, especially mental illness in general, is just stigmatized depending on what it is. But, you know, some of them out there are off meds and, you know, they do, they do pose somewhat of a risk. So again, like a, well, they're unpredictable. Well, that's right. That, it, that's right? the challenge. It's not that you know for sure, but it's it's the unpredictability that is alarming to people. I think. Uh, I had one instance. I I haven't had a lot of you know direct uh, a, a lot of uh, direct contact uh, as far as like harm harm goes. I've had a knife pulled on me and, and such, but uh, probably three or four months ago, I was. Uh, we were on patrol. Sorry, there are two of us. We were on patrol, and uh, we were uh, we were. I don't remember why we were why we were splitting up. Usually, we we uh, go out in, in groups because. So we, we were splitting up. I can't remember why. Um, but I I was going down the street by a gas station anyways, and I thought I saw a guy kicking a kicking a dog on the ground. So I, I ran over anyways and bull rushed him off it, and uh, it ended up being another guy, and the guy was just completely and utterly out of his mind. And had I not have been in complete gear, you know, with the, uh, over vest and stab proof clothing and whatnot, then I probably, you know, would have, would have just not addressed the situation and just called the police. But, you know, he, he was screaming repeatedly that he, owed, he has this $50 and such and such. And, you know, he's here kicking the guy in the head, kicking him to death 
over over fifty dollars that uh, apparently the waitress at the bar next door gave him instead of this other guy that was assaulting him by accident and that's all it was about but the guy that was getting kicked on the ground had no idea he was drunk and had no idea what the guy was going on about and he's killing this guy over fifty dollars and i'm like i'm just trying to talk him down but you know there's there's no when someone's that out of it there's no making them see any rational train of thought or what have you so i just my other that buddy arrived and he's an emt so uh or sorry, I called him and he arrived. He's an EMT, so he uh, he assisted the guy on the ground, and I held the other guy down until the police got there. And uh, I think that's I think that's the reason why I I knew that this is what I needed to do. I got a call there the next morning from the police. You know, we're not we're not that anonymous. We'll give the police our driver's licenses and whatnot, give them our information. You know, we're not hiding who we are. But uh, yeah, the uh, the guy's wife was calling. She wanted to get in touch with me for thanking me because, uh, you know, the guy had a wife and two kids at home and they were just so thankful to have, have this man back home. And I was just utterly in, in tears. And, uh, I knew, I knew that that's why, why I was doing this. It's not for, it's not for reward. It's not for merit. There is no, there is no reward in this lifestyle. All it, all it is, the reward is the job itself. The reward is getting, getting people home to their loved ones. And some people call, some people call this life destructive. Some people call it suicidal and maybe it is, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. And if I had seen one early on, I probably wouldn't be doing this, but you know what? All, all I could see was that that guy got home to his family and that's, that's really all I, I, I cared about, um, but I mean, definitely you have to, uh, you have to take your own safety into account. You have to, uh, again, it's, it's not, it's not fantasy. It's not fiction. You're, you're a living human or a living, breathing human being. I mean, your, your life could be taken in, in a split second doing this. It is dangerous at times. But uh, that's why that's why we patrol in groups, usually three or more, um, because again, you can't you can't carry any type of self defense weapon. You know, your weapon is your mind, and uh, when you need to use it, your body. And having you know three or four other big guys with you definitely makes that makes that a lot easier. You did sorry. You did say something interesting, which you said that if you'd seen a psychiatrist, you might not be doing what you're doing in now. another what life. Do you yes. Mean by that? Perhaps in another life, you know, just, you know, because again, it, developing this mindset, whether what they will ever, they want to call a hero complex. It's uh it's something that, that doesn't just happen. It's something that develops over, over many, many years. Some people, some people drop it. You know, all kids want to be heroes, want to be superheroes, but some people, some people it just becomes a reality. Some people just, uh, becomes way of life like it's just a, a a normal a normal job a normal way of life to to get up you know go to work every day and then come home and you know put on put on your uniform though would you uh would you consider talk therapy not to talk you out of the life that you've got at the moment but just to resolve or talk about some of the childhood issues that oh, you went through uh th- definitely I've, I've talked to uh I've talked to, it's not like I haven't seeked help before just to address certain things. I guess, uh, 
the root of it was just re relapses. My, uh, my mom was, uh, quite young and unable to take care of me. So her, her parents forced her to put me up for adoption and, uh, this, uh, or sorry, put me up for adoption, but I got in the foster care, um, for about 10 years. And the, the, just the emotional trauma of it caused her to resort to, to drugs and alcohol. And, uh, I guess, um, about nine years ago, I was trying to make contact and I found out it was, you know, I finally, I was, I was strong enough. I was ready to make contact and I already found out that she had been killed by a drug deal that had gone wrong. How long before you tried to contact her? Has she been murdered? Uh, maybe I, a year or two, you know, it's just, Mm. and this, this just caused, uh, the feelings of abandonment and neglect and hopelessness growing up as a child. I mean, you, well, you know, you're out on the streets trying to save your mom, right? I, yeah. I mean, I definitely, I've talked okay. with a lot of friends about this stuff. We try to, we try to be there for each other. Oh, we're not, we're not professionals. We're not psychiatrists, but we definitely try to, to try to be there for each other. That's another big part of it is to have a, to kind of have a, you know, a community, that, yeah, yeah, community ther- well, therapy, and, and it's a therapeutic in a way. Just to have a group to, you know, relate to. Because um, I mean, you see it work in other in other groups. You know, whether it be a. Just hang on a sec, dude, but sure. I'm a little uh, mild, mildly concerned about. Like I was, when I hear people giving problematic people the out of no free will, I always right. So you said. She had me when she was young. She couldn't take care of me. You said her parents forced her to give you up for adoption. You said the trauma of that made her take drugs. Right. right. right? So what you're giving is you're giving your mother excuses. No cause in herself. It's all just effects bouncing her around like a pinball, which is a metaphor that probably doesn't work with people of your age anymore. Well. But or an analogy. But um, do you think? that your mom had no chance and no choice uh she she was quite young um she was only 15 so she again she had no legal no legal choice to to keep me so they uh but did she have a choice about getting pregnant well again um no she didn't was she raped yeah Oh, okay. So, again, kind of... That's closer to things happening to you, and that certainly is going to push free will having to a feel, little bit outside the bounds, right? You know, and uh, part of growing up, a lot of that hate was was knowing that. Because my, my a lot foster, of what hate? Well, knowing that that's how I was brought into this world was through that. But what hate? Your hate? Other people's hate? No, my hate. My hate of my life and my my past. Oh, being the child of a, a rapist right. and his victim because was right. The, what, what's the old saying that that the crimes of the father fall onto the son or what have you? So going through life with that mindset, being afraid that you might be your father's son, um, 
it's it's a frightening well, but you, thing. you know I that mean, that's no. not no i, I know that but you know that that's not a real thing right? no I mean, oh i know i know but when you're a child i mean when you're being yeah, a yeah. child and you're when you're being neglected and physically abused and verbally abused you know several times a week it doesn't and you're you're told that like i was i was told that at, at eight or nine years old that who told you my foster father So, and these people, you know, these people were just there to collect a check. They, they were by no means what you'd call responsible, responsible parents or, or great role models. One was an alcoholic and the other one just sat and watched TV all day and didn't care what we did, you know, getting in fights or. So you were just like a, a tax livestock just, to them, right? Yeah, like you're something that they kept you penned up to get money from the government. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, that's. I'm sorry, man. I'm so sorry. I mean, I mean, you, and again, this is why I, I don't, I don't fully believe in my heart that there's, there's no hope for me. I, I found breaking through my psyche, especially that I'm starting to want things for myself finally. Cause I was just so antisocial and just uninterested in anything in the world, but, but this, but seeking justice for, the crime that had been bestowed upon my life that I couldn't see anything else besides my own rage. And I'm finally finding in my, you know, later years now, almost 30 that I'm wanting, wanting things, wanting, wanting a family, wanting things for myself. Um, so I guess the real question is how long, how much longer am I going to get, keep this up? How long, much longer do well, I Well, hang on a sec, if you don't sure. mind. Did you ever find out about your father? Uh, there, there's no, there's no records. I, I mean, I tried to submit a, a police report, you know, but something going back 20, 20 years, you know, they're not, it's not something that yeah. I don't, I've, uh, I became very, uh, unresponsive and very untrusting of the government at a very early age, given, given, you know, what, what had happened. Um, but I mean, again, it wasn't it wasn't the government that I mean, yeah, the government had a part to play in, in taking me away. But at the same time, you know, it was my my biological grandparents that the ones that were forced to give me up. So, I, it, and why were they forced to give you up? I uh, they just there was already a lot of uh, there was already a lot of family problems. There was a lot of uh, drug and alcohol abuse and. And such, there were a lot of brothers and sisters. Uh, about nine, nine brothers and sisters in total, and uh, you know, not much education. There wasn't really uh, any any healthy person in that family. A lot of them were, uh, a lot of them had committed suicide. A lot of them had dropped out of school and and you know, got gotten into drugs and alcohol themselves. So it's like. I, I grew and up, you've not you've not taken that road at all, I assume. Uh, I yeah. In my teens, I in my teens, I I took a lot of hard spills in my teens. I uh, right, just a lot of fighting and a lot of uh, just a lot of drinking and uh, just any any way to to dull the pain. I I didn't I didn't know any. There was no one to talk to. There was no one to help me. I was very antisocial. There was. You know, just the level of hopelessness that you feel at that age, 
you know, you're a child. You, you should, uh, children should be loved and should be raised and respected and, you know, think. Well, God. if you, uh, if you look down the tunnel of time and see a future that you don't want or you can't imagine enjoying or appreciating, I mean, why not just live for the moment, right? Well, that's just it. Uh, but I, I'd like, I'd like something. I would like something more, but again, it, it feels like this, this life that's developed in my mind, this, what's become of me, just, it's not going to let me go. Like this is, this is all I know. And this is all I'm ever going to be is, is someone that dresses up at night and goes out to help other people get home to their own families. That's all I see for myself. Without having a family of your own, right? Well, yeah. Well, that was, that was the general idea, I guess. Now, what was the old saying that I used to say? This is my curse. This is my test. I'll live without love or happiness, but I'll fear neither pain nor death. I think that was. Isn't it more like your penance? Like, um, if you feel that you are the product of a crime, then you must do good in the world. Right. Just to be even with others, right? Right. To balance, to balance, to balance with the evil. I have to, I have to go out and make out for my father's crimes to to scour the streets at night you know to to protect others and i think that's which might end up with you like your mom right well that's just it right you have to take all things in. i mean there's a there's a, re- a repetition here because and you know this and i am not going to insult your intelligence well, by that's, pretending that's that fine. you don't but sometimes it can help to hear from outside that the the crime that your father committed is not transmitted to you like original sin or genetically or anything like that, that you may be the only decent thing that came out of your shitty dad's life. Like you might be the only star in the endless black night of whatever horrors he perpetrated on the planet. And so as the only glowing seed that came out of this monster, uh, you actually uh, have a propulsion towards virtue uh, insofar as you have survived and flourished remarkably well given all of the horrors of your upbringing and that is something to be proud of what you've achieved rather than say somehow that the stain of my origin spreads to me that is a very i mean i know it's more immediate but it's along the lines of uh adam didn't listen to god and listen to eve and ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and therefore all humanity is cursed unless they bowed before the priests like There is no sin in life, and the most brutal origins leave no stain upon the life that they produce whatsoever. In fact, your knowledge of it can give you a greater commitment to virtue. You know, when shitty things happen to you, you either fold or you double down, right? Which is why people who grow up under extreme circumstances produce extremes in general without rigorous application of self-knowledge. They produce extremes of good and evil. Right. And... I think that your approach of attempting to do good in the world, obviously, I'm not going to disagree with you. It's a laudable and noble intention. I would not want you, myself, this is just me speaking here, obviously, but I would not want you, my friend, to end up feeling that you had a penance to pay for the crime of your father, because the crime of your father does not pass to you. Listen. I don't want to get into details about myself, but I've had to wrestle with a few of these things in my own sort of history and so on. And the the crimes of the elders in no way, shape or form passed down to the children. And 
if the children are alert and aware, and you certainly sound that way inclined, they can look at the crimes of their elders and vow to do the opposite. You know, I would not be nearly as good a parent, I would imagine, if I had not had such a bad childhood. There is a way of turning the temptation to evil into a spur for goodness. In other words, if you've been startled by something dangerous, you can either rush to embrace it and try to manage your fear with constant proximity, or you can run in the other direction and achieve true safety and security by being nothing, by being nowhere near where the danger is. My concern is that you're kind of rushing back into history here, continually putting yourself in potentially dangerous situations in a sort of Simon the Boxer way, which is an analogy that I use in my free book for those who want it. It's well worth a read, um, Real-Time Relationships, uh, which is available at freedomainradio.com slash free. And so my particular goal for you would be to recognize that your father, who was a flyby violent rapist, that his seed has nothing to do with who you are. Nothing to do with who you are. You know, he was a sword, and through the alchemy of your existence, his blade can be melted down and turned into a plowshare. It can be used for the production of food rather than the lopping of limbs. You are merely the body stuff produced by an evil man, which is metal that is reforged into something completely new. There is no hint of the sword in the plowshare after the alchemy of transition is complete. There is no hint of the evil in the new life that evil can violently create. It does not pass through you in some sort of genetic manner and mean that you are now a plowshare that can be used to cut off people's heads as the sword that came before the plowshare was used for. And you are entire and original to yourself. And we have a tendency to feel, and there is a kind of tribal community in feeling that we are the latest in a series of dominoes that perhaps has fallen since the beginning of time, which is why I think you're kind of drawn to these deterministic arguments, uh, which, you know, you can, uh, in a sense, forgive some of the people involved in the brutality of your origins by stripping them of free will. But because you're a human being, your brain is always primed for universalization, which means those you strip of free will for the sake of avoiding the anger you may feel towards them and giving them a sort of pseudo forgiveness by taking away their free will. The problem is that takes away your free will <clears throat> as well. The world and the mind, the mind that we use in the world is a series of, of levers, of, of gauges. And, and if you push, there's no individual, like, you know, like in an equalizer, you can do the bass and the treble each individually. No, there's one giant lever. And everything else follows that one. And if you strip free will from others for the sake of personal comfort and, and ease of mind, you strip free will from yourself. The degree to which you will accept free will for yourself is the degree to which you're going to get angry at people who've harmed you. Because if you can accept free will and personal responsibility after being having been harmed, then they can damn well do it too. And so my concern is that you've got this domino effect. Well, this is what happened and they had no choice and this is why they were forced to do this and it was inevitable that they did that and as a result of this, they did the other and so on. Look, there are people who are raped who don't turn to drugs. There are people who turn to drugs, uh, sorry, there are people who give their kids up for adoption who don't end up uh, turning to drugs. This is not dominoes. The moment you find an exception, right? Like there's nobody who falls into a volcano who survives, you know, assuming they hit lava, right? So that's deterministic. You push someone to a volcano, they're going to die. But the moment you find an exception, you find the magic land called free will. And it was not inevitable that your father raped 
your mother. And it's hard to even use that word father for the violent sperm donor, like for the sperm inflictor, the sperm whipper. This is not father. Father is something you do. And so it was not inevitable that happened. It was not inevitable that your mother had to give you up for adoption. It was not inevitable that she ended up being a drug addict. It was not inevitable that she ended up being murdered. None of this was inevitable. There's always choice assuming that, you know, these people are even vaguely mentally competent. And, you know, given that they weren't living in an assisted living facility, we're going to assume that. So it is, to some degree, comforting to think of them as dominoes falling one after another, inevitable. And when you listen to this again, my friend, and I hope that you will, you will hear that language of stripping free will. Uh, you're giving about them about as much free will as you would give a hungry shark gnawing on your leg. Okay, the hungry shark doesn't have free will, but these are human beings. They get the privileges of freedom. They get the privileges of property. Get, they get the privileges of human rights. Therefore, they get the privilege or curse of free will and choice. And they had it and you have it. Right. But the degree to which you're going to strip it from them is the degree to which your life becomes a penance for a crime you never committed. You are a man far more sinned against than sinning. And I'm concerned that you're going out into the nightlife and going back into the danger zone and going back into the potentially suicidal arena where you do not have the equipment of the cops, you do not have the weaponry of the cops, you do not have the backup of the entire police force, you are out there alone, you are out there, even if you're with other people, as you say, you are stripped to a defenseless state by the laws of the state. And my concern is that you're never, ever going to get out of these foster houses if you're continually drawn back into this kind of danger. So my strong, strong suggestion is that you get yourself into some one-on-one talk therapy. You've had one of the like top five most god-awful childhoods I've ever heard of. And in my conversations with people over the last decades, if not the last 40 years, I've heard of a lot of bad childhoods, my friend. And you have one that is staggeringly off the charts as far as bad childhoods go, which to my mind means that if you get a really great therapist, you can actually make the most progress because you have the most stuff to chew through, which means, and given your dedication to pursuing conversations like this and shows like this, you can do some amazing stuff with that. A, are you interested in that talking to a therapist? And B, if you are, do you have the resources? And if you don't, can we help? I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm full-time employed. I, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine financially to, to see a therapist. I think it's just more so a determination to, to not want to accept my ability to move on from it and to lead some kind of normal, happy life. I think that I've, I've oh, a happy life you can have, but it well, won't be normal. Well, I, I think mean, my life is very happy, but it's not normal. But I, I right? don't because you know. Well, what you, is normal? you've already been through these kind of experiences? I, I just I find that um, for for want for want of need to to have that type of lifestyle, my my only fear is that this this life isn't that the damage is so permanent that this life isn't going to let me go. But what if um, every day you take a step down this road that the damage becomes more permanent, right? Wouldn't you want to turn back now? Like, I mean, if you smoke long enough, there is that one cigarette that if you hadn't smoked it, you wouldn't have got lung cancer. And what if you're coming up on that cigarette? Wouldn't this be the time to quit? I, I completely agree with that. And I, I mean, I do I do see the light and 
it's starting to break through the darkness and I do see things that I want for myself. And uh, I think, you know, 20, 20 plus years of, of, of being angry, I think it just takes such a toll, such a toll on your system that uh, eventually you either just completely break down and, and lose yourself completely or you just you just you start to want more you start to want to to finally break free of of, of that life that you want to just some kind of happiness and wasn't it the case well you can tell me i don't want to presume but wasn't it the case black hood that when you went through your childhood you sailed through an entire society without people stopping and asking what was wrong and how could they help teachers and, and right. other people and other people's parents and kids and friends and relatives and extended yeah. family. And <laughs> didn't you sail through the whole damn thing? Like you thread a needle of other people's indifference and no one takes the time to stop and ask you but what's mean, going on and how it might be better. You, you've been subjected and suffered at the hands of, of, evil people yourself and you have some knowledge on this that sometimes there just isn't anyone there there's just you're completely and utterly alone no come on man you're giving me this deterministic shit again no there I... there were people there there were people there for you and there were people there for me and they saw that there was much awry in the state of you and me and they chose. I think I to do nothing. Acting out. I think acting out should have been the first trigger to let these people know that something was utterly. You're wrong. drinking and fighting. You said right. Cry for help. I think that's pretty obvious, right? right? Oh, and it's not, I'm not. I'm not saying like I, I never took the initiative to talk to people. I talk to people. No, but... no, no. I'm not talking about other people, man. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm not talking about you taking the initiative. I'm talking about you sailed through an entire society. What does society say? This is Canada, man. What does society say? We don't give a shit about kids. You know, we just basically, they're tax livestock. They're cannon fodder for fattening the teacher's pensions and days off. Uh, and, uh, you know, we stuff them in classes so that uh, uh, unions can get paid. And so that we can release the moms to go to work so they can pay taxes. And that's where we got to jam the kids. They don't say that. What does Canada say? What does the West say? Uh, oh, we love the children. It's all about the children. Let's go to the parenting section of the local newspaper. And it's all about the children. We care about the children and the children are everything. And, oh, boy, do we ever want to just have wonderful things for the kids and the children are our future and all that sort of bullshit. But what actually happens in the world outside of the propaganda? Listen. Listening to Canadians talk about their society is like reading fucking Pravda in the Soviet Union talking about industrial production. Look, it's another winning five-year plan. There's 6,000% more tractors than there were this time last minute. And when you listen to Canadians there uh, and, and people in the West, oh, the kids, we love the kids, the kids of the future. Okay, that's the propaganda. That's the hypothesis. What actually happened when you went through the system, the system being not just the government and the foster homes and all that. But you went to school and you had teacher after teacher. Did any single one of them ever sit you down and say, listen, it does not look like things are going well. Oh, well, what's happening? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit overdramatic. I, 
I did have there was one teacher that definitely took a took an interest and tried to take me under a wing and I completely resented her for it and, and pushed her away. Were there social workers floating around the no. foster home? No. None. Well, no, this was a this they was a dump a kid home. in an alcoholic foster home. And even if, and even if follow, there, no follow up. Even if there were, I mean, there was there was no way to get in contact with them. We didn't we didn't have a phone, we didn't have TV, we didn't No, but didn't they ever I mean if they were around, did they never ask oh, you how they you did would... they did follow ups and such, but I was I was never there. I, they always took me off somewhere so whenever the worker came to to talk to the Really? My foster. Well, yeah. And the worker was fine with that. The worker whose job it is to make sure that you're safe I, and healthy just never, ever actually sits down and asks you. I'm not being skeptical. No, I'm just like astounded no, that fine. this is possible. No, it's, it's, I, again, it's it's one of these things, though, that just bewilders me now thinking thinking back on it all these years later, just thinking back on it. It's like that, you know, that there wasn't, you know, more than. OK, but this is this is what I constantly hear. This is what I constantly hear. And I, I'm aware of people I talk to or so maybe a somewhat of a self-selecting group and so on. But this is what I hear. And this is what I experienced. If you have, and, you, just, you know, this is, listen, listen, listen to me. I mean, why, <laughs> why is Islam winning? Islam is winning because the parents care enough about their kids to at least indoctrinate them. Yeah. Right. I mean, they focus on their kids at least enough to indoctrinate them. And in the West, in the West, we've almost all become the lost boys. You know, the kids left at the mall and people don't even notice for a generation. Really? Kids left behind. The kids lonely, as you say, raised by television. Now it's tablets. Oh, very PC kids, world Parents as are well. too busy or, yeah, PCs or Xboxes. Parents are too busy, too distracted, too confused, too resentful, too spaced out, too dragged through family courts. Like, right. what is the objective empirical evidence in the West? The children. That we care about our kids. Now, religious people in the West, they do care about their kids uh, to the point where they will instruct them in religious matters. And Jewish people will care about their kids to the point where they'll instruct them in religious matters and draw them into religious or cultural, if they're secular, um, rituals and mythologies regarding uh, Judaism and so on. But in the largely secular West, people, you know, are happy, you know, I'll, I'll watch the comments below and let me know if I'm missing something. I don't think I am now pushing my half century mark here but where is the evidence the empirical evidence the people in the west give much of a shit about their kids so the children are the evidence themselves yeah i mean multiculturalism do the kids want to be jammed into other cultures other languages they don't understand they can't follow they can't fathom they can't navigate they can't negotiate tribalism do the kids want to be in, in school? Do they enjoy their schools? Nobody ever asked me whether I liked my school, or whether I wanted to be there, how it might improve in some conceivable manner. No. Where is the evidence that people in the West really care about their kids? And I say this not just to piss you off, although I think it is something we should be pissed off about. You know, because if people really cared about the kids, they'd ask the kids at least... Do you like public school? Do you like government schools? And if not, how could it be improved? Or if they cared about kids, they'd give the parents vouchers to go to whatever schools 
they valued best. Not kids that are just a bunch of livestock to pump up union coffers these days. And so the and the reason I'm saying that is that the superhero who you could be could be greater. Mm. You know, my concern is that your superhero persona, which I respect, which can do some good in the world, which did have a guy go home to his kids, okay. But I think given your suffering and given your knowledge that if you were to begin to ascribe free will to your society rather than assuming there are a bunch of zombie dominoes falling over each other and you're the only one who can have a choice, which won't work in the long run anyway, the longer you diminish free will in others, the more you erode it in yourself. What kind of superhero could you be with more self-knowledge and closure on prior trauma and with the incredibly volatile and electric ascribing of total free will? to others. You know, I've railed against the boomers, right? Railed against the boomers. They didn't fight against the Marxists. They didn't fight against the cultural Marxists. They did not fight against the Frankfurt School. They did not fight against the cucking of all things Western. They did not fight against radical feminism. They just basically took the easy, lazy way out. And now there's not enough money in the coffers to pay for their retirement. And the boomers are all like, well, you got to pay us our retirement because we paid into the system. I'm like, well, how about I treat you with about as much consideration as you treated me? How about I care about as much about your retirement as you cared about my childhood? Oh, they absolutely destroyed the economy. is a bitch, boomers. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying that they wanted to live in the lap of luxury at the time. They wanted all the big houses and all the big toys and completely decimated our economy. And now the next... Yeah, they wanted to avoid conflict. And they let a bunch of sociopaths... Yeah, they let a bunch of sociopaths take over the media and the schools and all that because they wanted to avoid conflict. Right. Okay, well, I can avoid conflict by not really giving a rat's ass about your retirement. You know, I'm sorry. You know, what goes around comes around, and I'm not going to show more compassion to an entire group that shows no compassion for me. So how about taking your experiences and uh, once you work through them with a therapist, maybe this some of this putting yourself in immediate harm's way is more of an acting out, but maybe... Maybe you could be an even greater superhero that could remind people that accepting necessary conflicts for the sake of improving the lives of children is the only fundamental moral crusade that matters. Mm. And your experience could make you very, very powerful in the communication of that. And it might be better than risking life and limb to pull a drunk off a guy over 50 bucks. Yeah, I agree. I mean, definitely knowledge is superhero. Knowledge is power. Definitely. Yeah. Will you think about the therapy thing? I've got a podcast um, on how to find a great therapist, which is my particular and personal thoughts on the subject. Um, But that would be my recommendation. I mean, the amount of um, challenges that you're carrying around through absolutely no fault of your own and through the fault of those who came before you and those who surrounded you growing up you you could really benefit from some therapy, not because you're broken and you need to be fixed, but because you have the potential for so much power that you need to find someone who can help you harness and focus it for the good of more than people being beaten up by drunks. Yeah, I need, an out, I need a healthier outlet, that's for sure. I, I, I'm completely in agreement with that. I mean, I, I respect you saying that. So you'll uh, give it a shot? 
Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, it, it was never not in the cards. Um, is it more immediately in the cards? Because you just gave me an, oh, definitely, like I didn't quite believe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I, I yeah can, I'll be right on that. I'll, listen I back, or thinking back, yeah, it definitely sounded like this. That. This um, week, will you think about calling someone? Oh, I hate to be annoying, but I'm going to be anyway. <laughs> will you think about calling someone this week? Yes, I will. Okay, will you let us know if you have, so we can nag you if you haven't? Sure, I definitely will. You will? Okay. Yeah, I just, I just, I hope you'll accept my incredibly deep sympathies for your history and also my appreciation for your openness in this conversation. And uh, I, I definitely right. respect and appreciate what it is that you do, bringing, uh, you know, hope to hopeless as well. You're definitely a hero yourself. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, from a superhero to a mere mortal podcaster, that is high praise. So thanks, everyone, so much. We'll look forward to hearing back from Black Hood, and we'll keep you posted uh, on his uh, progress, if that's all right with him. And uh, thanks again, everyone, so much for calling in. As always, as usual, um, freedomainradio.com slash donate to do the necessary material heavy lifting transfers to our giant philosophy consumption, more of media and bandwidth, 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 dear Lord. And... Um, FDRURL.com slash Amazon if you're doing some shopping and want to help us out for free for you. But really, we would hugely appreciate subscriptions and donations to keep us afloat and to keep us growing and to have us continue to do the minor superhero work that we do. Thank you, everyone, so much. Have a great, great week. We'll talk to you soon.